0: different episode up for uh, this week but it's going to have to uh, wait a couple of days and I'll put it out and then so my, my plan is kind of like this uh, we have some of those update slash true crime news roundup episodes that we're going to do um, I have a couple of standalone episodes I'm going to put up and then we have a series we've been working on And then kind of another series right on the back of that. But this is like more of a a live in real time episode than most of them. Uh, Because we're recording this and basically as soon as we record it, we're going to drop it into the feed. Because there's been a piece of major news and something that we covered a while back. We now know uh, that there is going to be some huge updates coming in the what's known as the Long Island serial killer cases, but it appears that they're going to mainly apply to the four cases to start with, at least, that were known as the, the Gilgo Beach Four, which is sort of separate from some of the other cases. And uh, that includes an arrest. It does. And you and I were <laughs> I got I got multiple notifications of this during the night, woke up, and I sort of forwarded a couple of them to you very early this morning, like before dawn, and uh, you had already started working on it, and you had actually accurately identified the suspect long before uh, it, the story had broke. So uh, you had started sort of tracking and uh, hunting down uh, aspects of his life. And I, I, guess, did you, I started doing that mainly from, uh, sort of the live shot they did of the neighborhood at Massapequa. Is that what you did?
1: I did. Yeah.
0: Oh, okay. We were a little surprised that an architect lived in that house cause.
1: Well, I learned something very interesting. So uh, according to, uh, like an unnamed source on the internet, I, I, actually don't know the name of the person, but uh, they were talking and said, uh, "And so, you know, take it for what it's worth." But uh, apparently, that was his his parents' house that he grew up in, and you know, I guess they've passed on, and uh, or maybe they're still alive. I don't know. But um, he he bought it because it's you know a sentimental house, I assume. But it is a weird house for an architect to live in. And I've seen that every single time a story gets posted with that sort of screenshot uh, from this morning. I believe uh, the reporter was on like Michigan Avenue.
0: Yeah. Michigan and, Avenue at first Avenue in Massapequa.
1: Right. And they had the, um, the camera kind of focused on it and, every time that is the shot for the article, because, you know, it was like police on the scene and, you know, it's all the different headlines about it. Uh, somebody's like that guy lives in that guy that lives in the house is an architect. Like, and so it's kind of a common theme there, but I did, uh, it made a lot of sense to me. Uh, I believe it was one of his neighbors, um, was saying that they had grown up, you know, in the same area and that, uh, the neighbor lived in the house that he was raised in and that it was the same for the suspect, right? Yeah. And so that made sense. But it, it's it's a very expensive house, but it's, you know, not in great shape and it looks old. And yeah, compared to
0: Long Island real estate, man.
1: Man, it's insane. But, like, you know, there are several houses that are really nice right there, like, next to it. They're all kind of, like, you know, row houses, basically. So, yeah, I knew, like really fast
0: well that gave us a little bit of a heads up and a, and a starting point it's always interesting to me uh when we're able to do that and i did notice that the people on the internet were sort of moving quickly to to sort of talk about uh there's an interview with this suspect out there now his name is uh rex Herman, uh which is a very strange long last name h-e-u-e-r-m-a-n-n and uh, he had an interview that he did about his job as what he calls an architectural consultant in New York City. I I believe I'm going to drop a big chunk of the audio in here so that people can hear uh, sort of the main part of the, the press conference itself. Um, we have some s- some information about him that goes all the way back to 2007. I will say this, for an architect in New York City, this guy managed to stay out of the papers and off the Internet for a large period of time, like he's really not mentioned a whole lot. Uh, the one article that you had sent over to me kind of, I think you tagged it and said, well, he seen, this guy seems like the right kind of sleaze. And this was ahead of uh, the release of, of him. That,
1: w- that was, and I think this, st- I don't know when that story was from, but the headline was something to do with him uh, falsely declaring a, a building empty of tenants, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, we could, have, we could talk about that now just for kind of the sake of getting it out of the way. It's from September 13, 2007, and the New York Daily News had it. Uh, Ethan Roan and Rich Shapiro were the authors of the article, and, and the headline actually says, Harlem apartment building may not be safe until next week. Uh, But it does move quickly to what you were just saying. Uh, More than two dozen Harlem families are booted from their crumbling apartment building, and they won't be allowed to return until next week, said city officials. Yesterday, on September 12th, the announcement came as the city buildings department commissioner said the agency was investigating whether the architect hired to renovate the seven-story building falsely identified it as vacant. And that architect is identified as Rex uh, Hearman. Uh, That revelation provided little comfort to at least 26 families left homeless after fire officials ordered the unsafe 85-unit brick tenement evacuated on Tuesday. Uh, This has been a nightmare said Jacqueline Javier, 36, adding that she and other residents had been complaining about the building's cracked walls and weakened floors for weeks. This is something that city agencies knew about. Why did they wait for the fire department to say it's unsafe? There are more than 700 open housing code violations against 305 to 307 West 150th LLC, and that's the company that owns the 305 West 150th Street building. Uh, Neil Coleman, at the time, a spokesman for the Department of Housing Preservation and Development, said the agency will likely ask a housing court judge tomorrow to an, appoint an administrator to run the apartment block because the building had been effectively abandoned by the owner. A spokesman for the company that manages the building, which was Manhattan North Management Company Incorporated, said the residents were told the renovations would create a certain amount of uh, nuisance. And Hureman, of course, did not return calls for comment. Representatives of the LLC could not be reached for comment. Uh, The Red Cross set up some uh, of the families in temporary housing and the rest, uh, they got housing in upper Manhattan, the Bronx, and Brooklyn from the city itself. So that's the type of person we're dealing with. But we now know it's not entirely his fault. He was very busy. Man. (sighs) Um, So the way that this has gone, we covered um, quite a bit of uh, the Long Island serial killer cases. Was that last year or the year before?
1: You know, um, I was trying to remember. uh, They released... um, a an adjacent case uh uh it was shannon gilbert
0: yeah yeah we were talking about shannon gilbert's 911 calls
1: right and so uh that was released and we we did that we talked briefly about that and we played the call and then Brittany was on that case too i think that those were the two because there were two like huge news things back to back
0: Yeah, you're right. Uh, Bruni Drexel would have been around Uh, from
1: Myrtle Beach, right? And so, um, so there was arrest made in her case, and uh, the nine hundred and eleven call from Shannon Gilbert's case was released. Now, Shannon Gilbert is not involved in this particular set of cases,
0: right? Not currently. Yes.
1: Um, And she, but the reason she comes up is because uh, looking for her body is how. Essentially, all the other Long Island serial killer bodies were found, right? Correct. Or the ones associated with it, I guess I should say.
0: Correct. There are uh, sort of an unknown number of victims uh, overall. They, uh, If you go on the Wikipedia, I think it says a weird number, like 10 to 20 or something like that. The, the gist of this was December 11, 2010, uh, Shannon Gilbert has gone missing. She made a nine-one-one call that lasted twenty-three minutes. Um, she was uh, the way that goes down is she was she was fleeing from the home of a client, and when she did that, uh, it set off a search. So, as they were looking for her, the Suffolk County Police Department's Missing Persons Bureau had sent out. Uh, one of their officers with a cadaver dog. And over the next few months, he didn't find anything related to her. And I'm not 100% sure of the dates here. When did Shannon Gilbert actually go
1: missing? It was in May of 2010.
0: Okay, so May of 2010, she makes the 911 call and she goes missing. December of 2010, they end up finding the first... Uh, human remains there, which I believe was Melissa Bartholomew, based on what they were saying today. Um, she was found in a, in a burlap bag. And then they found essentially uh, three other victims. So Maureen Brainerd, Melissa Bartholomew, Megan Waterman, and Amber Costello... Right now, these are the cases that are mentioned in the press conference today. Now, the way they're mentioned is this guy is charged with first-degree and secondary murder with Melissa's case, Megan's case, and Amber's case. They are still working a Marine's case, but they believe that he is going to be the suspect in her case.
1: Right, and uh, that was what was mentioned today was specifically the, the burlap sacks. Um, are burlap material they are found in. Now, this is it's it's very interesting to me because I have the opportunity to point something out. There was this huge part of the narrative, the mainstream media narrative, about the burlap lap sacks, and they were saying that they were the kind used at like plant nurseries, right? Yeah. And that is not true. Uh it was completely wrong. Somebody made that up. They were actually camouflage burlap right I don't really know what that is but it was it was not any it was not a fact of the case at all right and somebody used the fact that the burlap the girls were found I don't know if they were found in it or wrapped in it or what but uh they used that to try and point the case in a particular direction right yes and it was completely false There's no reason for anybody to have ever thought that. They completely made it up. And so uh, it's a good example of one of the narrative points that is just completely fiction about this particular set of cases. So the girls were found in similar material. And I don't know what that entails, whether they were in a bag or they were just wrapped in the material. But also they were bound the same way.
0: Yes, and they point that out really specifically in the press conference.
1: I don't know that they'd ever said that before. In no, fact,
0: I, I don't think we knew that.
2: No,
1: they—I believe all four. Now, this is a lot of a lot of different cases uh, go along with the Long Island serial killer, or the Gilgo Beach murders, or the four we're talking about, and then Shannon Gilbert. In my recollection, all I knew was that some of them had their cause of death was homicidal violence, right? Yeah. And that's always very confusing to me. But the fact that they mentioned today that they were all bound similarly, it makes more sense that the conclusion was drawn, right? That it was homicidal violence because you don't usually tie yourself up, right?
0: Well, you and I are working on something for possibly (laughs) the summer and that has become a—I'm uh, having some issues communicating effectively with some police officers in Washington state. And well,
1: keep that in mind. Perhaps they were tied up.
0: Yeah, that's—I I actually specifically was wondering if perhaps they had evidence of zip ties. Because you and I are—we're are, looking at a, a double homicide I've gone one direction with it, you've gone another direction with it, and we're we're debating if we can get enough information from people close to that double homicide to present it on the show, because it's not something that's in the media.
1: Right, it's not at all.
0: And the reference to
1: homicidal, homicidal violence, violence
0: was all we got out of the police before we essentially got shut down and told we weren't going to get any more information.
1: Right, and it's an old case, so that's dumb. It's very, very
0: old. Yeah. It's, it's, this case is over 20 years old. It ties back to our coverage of Israel keys in a way, just from the perspective that it's a couple and it's a location that we were interested in. But that term came up today in in the press conference about the Gilgo beach four, which I'm going to, I'm going to really quickly talk about the Gil, the Gilgo beach four, like give you the nutshell version. And I'm going to try and keep it as accurate as possible Normally, we don't cover cases like this when Delphi has a big break or when the Idaho Four has a big break. We kind of stay out of it and we'll come back if there's something significant about it. In this particular case, because we've talked about this case at length over several episodes, I wanted to come back around to it uh, now that these four seem to be tying into one suspect. And I, I find that very interesting. Um, I'm going to put these in order here. Um, and I'm going to start with, okay, because we were just talking about something from September 2007, there's not an official charge in this case. But I'm going to start with Maureen. Marine. Uh, Marine last name is hyphenated Brainerd Barnes. She was from Norwich, Connecticut. She was 25 years old when she disappeared. She was last seen on July 9th of 2007. She had said that she planned to spend the day in New York City. She was never seen again. Um, She was a mother of two. Now, she worked as a Craigslist sex worker. That is how she paid her mortgage. But she had been out of the sex industry for seven months, and she returned to work to pay some bills after she got an eviction notice. Her body was the first one found in December of 2010. Shortly after her disappearance, a friend of Brainerd Barnes, Sarah Carney's, received a phone call from a man on an unfamiliar number. The man claimed that he had just seen Brainerd Barnes and she was alive and staying at a whorehouse in Queens. He refused to identify himself. He could not tell Sarah the location of the house. He told her he would call back and give her the address, but he never called again. And Sarah said the man had no discernible New England accent. She specified he did not sound like he was from New York, and he did not sound like he was from Boston. At the time of her disappearance, Maureen was working at a Super 8 motel in Manhattan. On the night of July 9, 2007, she called a friend in Connecticut, and she told her that she was planning on meeting a client outside of the motel. Like many of the victims of the Long Island serial killer, Maureen is very small. She was about 100 pounds, and she was 4 feet 11 inches tall. Uh, now, her cause of death has been identified as strangulation. Then there's Melissa Bartholomew. Melissa was 24 years old, and she was from Erie County, New York. She went missing on July 12th of 2009. She had been living in the Bronx, and she was working as a sex worker through Craigslist. On the night she went missing, she met with a client. She put $900 in her bank account and she attempted to call an old boyfriend, but she couldn't get through to him. About a week later, for the next five weeks, her sister Amanda, who was a teenager at the time, began to receive a series of vulgar, mocking, and insulting calls from a man who may have been the killer using Melissa's cell phone. The caller would ask Amanda if she was a whore like her sister. The calls became increasingly disturbing and eventually culminated in the caller telling Amanda that her sister was dead and that he was going to watch her rot. Police traced some of the calls to Madison Square Garden, Midtown Manhattan and Massapequa. They were unable to determine who was making these calls. Bartholomew's mother noted that there were a lot of calls to Manorville from her daughter's phone around the time of her disappearance. Now, this ties back to a guy named John uh, Bitroff, who was a carpenter from that town. He had been convicted in two other murders, and he had been named as a suspect in the LISK cases. Now, Melissa, also tiny, she's 95 pounds, and she was about four feet, 10 inches tall. Uh, her cause of death had been identified as strangulation. Uh, then there's Megan Waterman. Now, Megan Waterman was from South Portland, Maine, and she went missing on June 6, 2010. Same deal. She had been placing advertisements for sex work on Craigslist. The previous day, on June the 5th, she told her 20-year-old boyfriend that she was going to go out and that she would be calling him later. At the time of her disappearance, she was staying at a motel in Hoppage, New York, which is about 15 miles northeast of Gilgo Beach. Her body was also recovered in December 2010. Uh, Megan was a mother. She had one child. And she had become a victim of sex trafficking, according to multiple sources, including the Portland Press-Herald. And uh, there was a a newspaper, a a magazine that had an article on her. I don't recall the name of it right this second, but I'm not using much more than that. I just verified that they seemed like they had checked their sources pretty well. Uh, she was small as well, about five feet, five inches tall. She had also been strangled. So then we have Amber Lynn Costello. Now, Amber, she was from West Babylon, New York. She was 27 years old. That is one of the closer like areas to Gilgo Beach. Um, she was allegedly a heroin user, and she had been a sex worker. She went missing September 2nd, 2010. And that night, she reportedly went to meet a stranger who had called her multiple times and had offered her $1,500 for her services. Uh, She was born in Charlotte, North Carolina, and raised in Wilmington, North Carolina. But she had been living in West Babylon, New York, when she disappeared. Her family believed that she was in a residential drug rehab center. So she doesn't get immediately reported missing when she stops responding to their uh, phone calls and messages. Prior to moving to West Babylon, she'd been living with her second husband down in Clearwater, Florida, and she'd been working as a waitress. Her family notes in several articles and sources that she was a strong student. Um, She became a a heroin user when she was a teenager, Um, and she had been sexually assaulted by a neighbor when she was just six years old. She was four foot eleven, and she weighed approximately 100 pounds. She had also been strangled. And it's not that I don't want to get into the other victims, but you can go read about more of what people speculate related to the Long Island serial killer. These victims are not charged. Right now, the only ones charged are Megan Waterman, Melissa, and Amber. Maureen is mentioned as being a part of this. Okay. Uh,
1: She has, and um, uh, I just wanted to add, uh, these charges are... I believe, but I believe they're the product of a grand jury indictment.
0: Yeah, this is an indictment for dual charges of second degree and first degree homicide. Basically, that means they're not 100% sure if he did it on purpose or if it was done in, like, a a crime of passion kind of situation. But they're charging him with both, and they're going to take it to trial to see what comes of it. This guy is not what I expected.
1: Well... There's something that's covered in the press conference, which I didn't have a chance to uh, look at further, but something occurred where he had hired a sex worker and uh, something like she comes in, he pays her and then he's like bullied out of, you know, uh, Basically, they're robbing him. Right? Yeah,
0: they're, they're rolling him is what they call it.
1: Yeah. OK, I don't really know much about this kind of stuff. But um, so, like, you know, the guys come in and then, you know, they're having the guy leave. The guy that just paid the sex worker, they're having him leave without bothering to get his money back. So he got nothing in return. Right. Yep. And apparently I don't really know how this came to light. I don't know if he called the cops. I, I don't know what happened there. Do you?
0: It seems like there's some kind of record of someone um, calling the police on this situation. Okay. That, that's what they're saying, yes.
1: Okay. And so I'd never heard that before. But in in the – it's got to be the people calling the cops because they described him as an
0: ogre. He looks like Shrek.
1: He looks like – an he does look like an ogre. But, like, can you imagine, like, that Be That is – it's not – wrong right that description is not wrong but when they said it like that stuck with um but uh, it stuck with the investigators however it came about being like a thing right I don't I can't follow it it was mentioned in the press conference I'd never heard that before of course I'd never heard of this dude before right? right before today I didn't know this guy when it when they started that, I wondered – So, because I immediately go to, well, how old was he in 2007, right? And then I immediately start thinking like, well, is this his first victim and all this other stuff. But I was like, I wonder if that was the motivation for him starting this.
3: Being that, that.
0: Well, that that's a really good question. Um, I, it would be the perfect kind of trigger – uh, have you read the the documents in this case yet? You had a chance to do that,
1: like that have just been filed.
0: Yeah, yeah. Like uh, no. there's a bail so there's a bail application that went in. Um, it went in pretty quickly. Uh, so right off the bat, uh, there's a couple things that stand out. I know everybody's going to be running to print this, so I'm going to say what they were. This guy has a butt ton of uh, burner phones. So many linked to him. Yes. So one of the victim's sisters got a phone call that was actually traced to his office.
1: Yeah.
0: He had a Tinder profile that, for some reason, with his own photos and everything, it's on one of the burner phones. Um, he had a Chevy uh, uh, Avalanche, is that what they said? Chevrolet Avalanche?
1: I believe so, and I believe that that's tied to that case.
0: Correct. The, it's tied to the, the incident the where they have witnesses, and that witness – well, I, I, I'm not 100% sure on this, but one of the things that shocked me – because there's a couple things going on here. So one of the things that shocked me about this is it's not his DNA. You know this, right?
1: It's his wife's DNA.
0: Right. So they get his DNA later, and it does match some of what's going on. But they find his wife's DNA on the victims.
1: Right. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. I don't know what the law is in New York that the – I believe it was the prosecutor mentioned when he said that there's specific laws in New York State that don't allow him to talk about DNA evidence. And so this didn't come up in the press conference, right?
0: It is. Okay, so there's some things missing from the press conference and I debated just, okay. the press conference is long, more than likely because it's a Friday night. I'm going to just record it all and drop the whole thing at the end. But it wasn't the most interesting part of what's going on here. If you want, I can run over this with you like right now or I can give you a second to read it and come back in here Um, because I would like to talk about what's in this bail application because it is crazy. All
1: right, well, I got to read it then, so give me a minute.
0: It's like a 32-page document that they've dropped on us here from Suffolk County (laughs) Court. It is missing. My copy is missing page 31, which appears to have some interesting stuff in it related to the hair and DNA, but we get everything else that they were doing, right?
1: Yeah, I got it I, I feel like it's just a mistake I don't think they're um, keeping that away from anybody um, well what,
0: what do you get out of this document
1: um I feel like they were very carefully making their case against this dude it's interesting and I don't I haven't gone back to like listen to what we've talked about uh, with regard to when Shannon Gilberts Uh, 911 call was released. I believe it was last year. We, we talked briefly about that whole situation.
0: We did. Yeah. I kind of had a theory that some of this was trafficking and like there was some other stuff in there.
1: Right. And so um, I can't remember what I said. And so I'm not trying to directly contradict myself. It's just anytime we're talking about these things, you know, I, Uh, my opinion evolves, right? (laughs) And without having heard it, I might have had a completely different opinion back then when we were focusing on that. But with this, I'm not entirely sure. Actually, no, I am sure. Um, I am sure of why. I was going to say, I'm not entirely sure why uh, Maureen Barnes, uh, Maureen Brainerd Barnes uh, isn't included, but, I do know why, and it's because they're lacking several pieces of evidence that they have in the other three cases they're lacking evidence um of financial transactions, and they don't know if the family was out of town during that period of time it right, says it right. in the, um in the this isn't what is this? I don't even know what the name of this document is. What is it?
0: This is a bail application. You mean the document I was handing you? It's a, it's, his, it's the, it's like sort of the can I get out of jail uh, response from the prosecution saying we don't say, think you should get out of jail. This all.
1: doesn't look like anybody um, who's trying it's to get out of jail.
0: to hold him on a $50 million bond. That's what's happening.
1: Uh, well, he, he probably should be held on a $50 million bond um, or no bond at all. And the reason I say that is – Um, Now, some of it, we're getting to this evolution of where circumstantial evidence is becoming, like, more and more factually verifiable. (laughs) And I have a hard time distinguishing, like, when do the circumstances, circumstances actually, like, become fact, right? And what I mean by that is, um, you've got these circumstances laid out in this uh, response as to why he should not be given bail, uh, any sort of bail. Um, right. They're talking about um, his cell phone versus the burner phone that was being used at the time with regard to the different victims, right? And they're doing this sort of side-by-side comparison, talking about the burner phone is used here, and then we have record of his cell phone being used here, right? And they show the, the, the points on the map, right? And so those are just two circumstances, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah, that, there's a lot in here more than just those two circumstances, but yes. No, no,
1: no. But I just, just, I'm just, just trying to illustrate my point. Like, so you've got these two circumstances here because the calls in and of themselves, I mean, the circumstances, the guy that, you know, uh, was using the burner phone to communicate with the victim is within however many feet of, you know, The guy, this, the defendant, his known cell phone, and it's within, you know, whatever amount of time. And I'm just saying, like, when does that actually become, like, factual evidence, right? Because it's really, I mean, that has nothing to do directly with the murders, right? We're not talking about a murder weapon. We're not talking about, you know, any sort of direct evidence. This is circumstantial, right? Right. But it's becoming... Harder and harder to distinguish what is considered circumstantial versus what. I mean, because to me, this is like factual information and like nine times out of ten or any other number you want to throw that way. You're not going to have circumstances lining up like this.
3: Yeah.
0: Okay. so overall, this guy is. Uh, I I don't I don't know how to explain how I feel about him. He is lining up as even if he didn't do this, he did something. This guy is like he he looks like a serial killer. Like everything on paper, all the DNA, all the burner phones, all the stuff he's doing, the torture porn, which we'll get into in a second. This guy is he reads like a predator, doesn't he?
1: Well, I mean.
0: At least from the prosecution's perspective here.
1: Oh, like you're saying the description. You're not talking about like how he actually looks.
0: Oh, uh, you know. <laughs> okay. So first of all, he doesn't look that like weird overall. I no, will he, say he's, he's not great looking.
1: No, he's uh, just he. But he's also not normal looking. Um, And I don't mean that necessarily like he's ugly. Um. But he's a huge guy.
0: Yeah, I feel a little weird talking about him because, okay, and I'm going to say this and and you can say whatever. This guy is kind of my size if I just didn't care about being in shape anymore. He's like, he's he's my height. He's not quite my weight, but he's like in that range. Mine, I would say, you know, in – my perspective is I'm a little more muscular than this guy is but he's also 59 but like I like I sort of like I get it I you know I just don't look like Shrek and this guy looks like Shrek he even has like the weird prince haircut like from the prince and Shrek he's kind of like a lot going on here that like makes me think of him being part of the Shrek movies and well, that over description <laughs> is perfect
1: it really is and it was immediately okay, so I wanted to clear that up. Earlier I was confused about that. Um, but it was uh Amberlyn Costello, um it was the situation was that I think it was maybe her roommate was pretending to be her boyfriend and they stiffed um Rex. It was them doing the ruse. So this was, she would have been the last one of these four, I believe.
0: Right. He left a living witness who is not one of the victims.
1: Well, she, um, so, but that was the ruse. So it couldn't have been the motivation because she was the last one. Right. But what ended up happening was he made her feel guilty. And so she ended up seeing him after they had pulled the ruse. That's why it came up. Nobody reported it to the police. It was just after she didn't come back, Yeah, that came to the attention of, you know, uh, I don't know who was playing the boyfriend, because what happened was he came to her house, and while he was there, um, her, you know, quote, angry boyfriend, end quote, came in and was really mad, and so what ended up happening was the guy left, right, because he didn't want drama. He was trying to, you know, pay for a sex worker to do whatever. And so he just left and, but he sent her a message and was like, that wasn't very nice. Um, I expect credit for next time or something like that. And so she ends up seeing him again. Now they've traced like him buying these burner phones. And then he, they've traced the contact between the burner phone that's linked to him and the victims, uh, right around the last call that they went out, out on. Right. Um, so his cell phone the burner cell phones that he he's using, they're correlating there, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, they are.
1: So it's like, you know, at this time he texts this victim's number and then she leaves, and that's the last time she's seen by any of her loved ones. And so because that all is adding up, now one of the things that um stood out to me at the press conference, and I, I don't know if you noticed it or not, but it was like, uh, which actually I should back up because the press conference and this filed uh, response to the request for bail, they contradict each other because they said that God. last year uh, they knew who this guy was. the
0: And they've been following him.
1: The bond, however— Indicates that the DNA confirmation didn't happen until like April of this year, right? Yeah. So I'm not entirely sure what was happening there, but uh, we—you had said, doesn't he look like a serial killer?
0: He totally <laughs> I mean, does, right? I don't,
1: I don't know. I don't know. To me, he looks. I mean, he—he. He, I'm not shocked by it at all, right? And, uh, but it, they could have arrested literally anybody and I wouldn't have been shocked.
0: Yeah. It's one of those type cases. Um, we had had a couple of different theories on it when we released some episodes. Here's, here's what I want to do. It's a Friday night. I got a few minutes. Um, if you have to go, you know, let me know. This is what I think I'm going to do. I'm just going to call it, call out what's on these pages. And you tell me if you want me to like read through the counts or if you want me to skip because there's 32 pages here and I'm going to drop the press conference. OK, so the first page is just uh, it's a bail application document. Uh, it's labeled with the statute and it's, it's labeled with the people of the state of New York versus uh, uh, Rex Herman. Uh, so it says that he's been charged by a grand jury with murder in the first degree. And that's related to Melissa uh, Bartholomew. And then another murder in the first degree, which is a class A-1 felony. Uh, so with Melissa, it's on July 10th, 2009. Then there's Megan Waterman. She's June 6th, 2010. There's Amber Costello. She is September 2nd, 2, 2010. Um, and then they they double up on the counts and they go from first degree to second degree. They have Melissa down as a uh, uh, a second-degree murder on July 10th, Megan down as a second-degree murder on June 6th, and then they have Amber down as a September 2nd, 2010, second-degree murder. Okay, so it says, as described above, uh, based on the serious, heinous nature of these serial murders, the planning and the forethought that went into these crimes, the strength of the people's case, the length of incarceration the defendant faces upon conviction, extended period of time that the defendant was able to avoid apprehension, his recent searches for sadistic materials, child pornography, images of the victims and their relatives, counter surveillance conducted online as to the criminal investigation, his use of fictitious names, burner email and cell phone accounts, and his access to and history of possessing firearms, which we're going to come back to this in a second. But this guy has 92 registered firearms. (laughs) The only means to ensure that defendant Rex A. Heurman returns to court is to remand him without bail. So that's the basis for this document. They really don't want this guy to get any kind of bail.
1: No, they don't. But it's interesting. uh, You noticed in the press conference they talked about how um, he – they – well, and it's going to all come out, I'm sure, but – we don't know exactly when he was identified and in the response for why he shouldn't have bail, they mentioned new burner phones that have come to light. Like I believe it was like 21 yes. and 22 and his communication with different sex workers. Right. And yes. so, you know, that's got me wondering on one hand, you know, how long was he identified? How long did they allow him to you know, hunt for his next victim, possibly. And, you know, if they did just identify him, you know, it's entirely possible the prosecutor that was speaking at the press conference didn't have all the information, right? Um,
0: it, I got a think little, it got a little testy. Like, I, I couldn't hear all the questions, but, like, the prosecutor was getting upset.
1: Well, because they wanted to know about the other victims. Right. And he was trying to... Steer the conversation strictly on the three charges and the one more that will more than likely be charged. Right. I noticed right. that one of um one of the big sort of bylines that has followed this arrest, which happened last night, and it like if you Google it, it shows up is Shannon Gilbert's family has commented. Um, I believe it's her sister has commented on the fact that uh, this guy's been arrested. Now, I don't know if you have an opinion, but if you recall, in mainstream media, Shannon Gilbert's family was very loud, which, you know.
0: You had to be. I mean, they, they, they did. Honestly, even if Shannon Gilbert is not included here, Shannon Gilbert is the reason this guy is finally caught.
1: She is. I agree. And unfortunately, um, I'm sure that people have different opinions, but I feel that uh, Shannon Gilbert probably died of, you know, exposure or something that didn't have anything. I don't think this guy was waiting out in the swamp weeds for her.
0: I, I can't even comment on her because what I discovered today, and particularly with this document sitting in front of me right now, is we didn't know shit about this case, and I'm not entirely sure that the prosecutors yet understand this case.
1: Um, well, this guy was—he was having a ball.
0: Well, let's let's talk some more. Are you talking about the killer? Yeah. All right. So let's let's go through this. This is the bail application continued. Um, They talk about the discovery of the victims, which are pretty much what I described a little earlier in the podcast. So December 11, 2010, John Melia, who's a police officer, he was conducting a training exercise with his canine partner, Blue, and that's a long ocean parkway in Gilgo Beach, which is in Suffolk County, and that's in the state of New York. During the course of this training exercise, Blue locates a set of human remains, Okay, so Blue, the canine, they are out there specifically because they're looking for Shannon Gilbert, which ties into what you said. Those remains are identified to be Melissa's remains. Two days later, continuing that search, they are like basically looking in the proximity of where Melissa is recovered. And on that date, the Suffolk County Police Department They find three additional sets of human remains within a quarter mile of the first discovery. And they've got a map. Uh, If you can find this online, it's just the Suffolk County bail application. But they've got a map. And I was shocked. They're like right next to each other.
1: I was not shocked by that. I had looked into that pretty extensively.
0: Well, I, I had looked into it. I just didn't realize that it's basically one Google pen and all four victims are... Right there. Uh,
1: Yeah, they're very close together. Um, And the circumstances are very, very similar.
0: Yeah, so then they identify Melissa, and then they identify Maureen. They identify Megan Waterman, and they identify Amber Costello. The cause of death of all four women is that sort of elusive homicidal violence. They threw a footnote in here. In the bail application. And it says, although the defendant is not yet charged with any crimes as to the disappearance and murder of Miss Brainerd Barnes, who's Marine, he's the prime suspect in her death and in the investigation, which is continuing and is expected to be resolved soon. Moreover, there is substantial evidence of the defendant's involvement in the disappearance and death of Marine. Which evidence closely fits the modus operandi of the defendant in relation to the deaths of the other three women and supports the current charges. As such, this bail application contains descriptions of that evidence, which demonstrates the strength of the people's cases currently charged. They threw a couple of images in here for us. Um, the main image is just kind of where this is on Long Island. The secondary image is an inset image from Google Earth to show you how close together the discovery of the remains are. It says the investigation into these deaths were linked in addition to other factors as the victims each appeared to have been placed in close proximity to one another, 22 to 33 feet from the edge of the parkway. All were petite females, approximately 22 to 27 years old, They were believed to be working as sex workers, all had missing clothing and personal possessions, all had been killed by homicide, all had contact shortly before their disappearance with some person using a burner cell phone. A burner cell phone is defined in the bail application as a cell phone without an associated verified identity. The cell phones of two of the four victims were used by the killers after their deaths. In addition, each of the four victims were found similarly positioned, bound in a similar fashion by either belts or tape, with three of the victims found wrapped in a burlap-type material, which you had mentioned earlier. they In the press conference, you'll hear them describe the wrapping even more specifically.
1: They say that it's um, camouflage hunting burlap.
0: Yeah, it's what ghillie suits are made out of is what they're describing there.
1: Okay, and so I was thinking. Well, like, is it like a a burlap tarp?
0: It's um, um. I don't think I would describe it as a tarp, personally. But yeah, it's in that. It's in that realm. It's a. It's going to be a piece that's probably. Uh, it's much bigger than a sack. If that's what you're getting at, it's not like a super sack, like they did, like had been described sort of erroneously on the internet. Is that what you mean?
1: Um. Well. I was just saying uh, th- what had been said was that it ca- it was the kind of burlap that would have been used in a plant nursery and one of the people who had been sort of uh, with the mop mentality they'd been sort of rallied against as possibly the suspect uh, had a tie to a plant, nursery or something. Do you, do you remember any of this?
0: Yeah, yeah, I remember. I remember exactly what you're talking about. But this basically absolves all of that situation.
1: It, none of it was true to begin with. And whoever said it the first time, they were incorrect. And um, the whole point of using these camouflaged uh, burlap hunting, whatever. You said a ghillie suit? Is that what you said?
0: Yeah, saying? I'm calling it a ghillie suit because the base for a ghillie suit um, it's something that snipers wear. We talked about a little bit with Israel keys. The base of it is generally like a human shaped, I guess, like it's not a skin suit per se. Um, but it's like a, uh, a, a sort of head to toe covering in it, It's almost netting like.
1: So that's not burlap then, right?
0: It's burlap. It's, uh, I don't know how to explain it. It's a holy material. It's very similar to what burlap sacks would be. Yes. Well, Um, in
1: in this case, the comment that was made was this was specifically put, like, the reason that they were disposed of in this manner was to provide camouflage to the disposal, right?
0: Yeah. So it blends in with the surroundings.
1: Right. And so that's what the prosecutor uh, made note of, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah. So he point out the recent investigation is in January 2022, the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office assigned an experienced team of investigators, analysts, and prosecutors working jointly with law enforcement partners from the Suffolk County Police Department, New York State Police, Suffolk County Sheriff, and the Federal Bureau of Investigation. A comprehensive review of every item of evidence and uh, the information in this investigation was undertaken by this task force or his team. On March 14, 2022, approximately two months into the renewed joint investigation, this comprehensive review led to the discovery of a first generation Chevrolet Avalanche that was registered to defendant Humanman at the time of these murders. This was significant because of a witness to the disappearance of Amber Costello. They had identified a first-generation Chevrolet avalanche as the vehicle believed to have been driven by her killer. And that's tying back into the whole ogre scenario that you and I have been talking about. The discovery led to a comprehensive investigation of Rex Hureman, which consisted of over 300 subpoenas, multiple search warrants, and other legal processes to obtain evidence. As discussed below, among the items uncovered were cell phone billing records for uh, the defendant corresponding to cell cell site locations for the burner cell phones used to arrange meetings with three of the four victims, taunting calls made to the relatives of Melissa, a call made by a detective to Melissa's cell phone while looking into her disappearance, and then calls checking the voicemail of Maureen after her disappearance. In addition, the defendant lived in Massapequa Park, where the victims were believed to have disappeared from. He worked in Midtown Manhattan, in the vicinity where the taunting calls were made to the sister of Melissa. As set forth more fully below, the defendant is believed to be the person who used the burner cell phones to communicate with each of the four victims prior to their disappearances and who used Maureen's cell phone and Melissa's cell phone after their deaths. Both the defendant and these burner cell phones had significant connections to similar locations in both Midtown Manhattan and Massapequa Park, New York. They're tying all of this together pretty nicely. Even from a defense perspective, which I typically come from, this guy is more screwed than a lot of the big defendants we've seen recently. And that includes Brian Koberger, Richard Allen... This is not like some obscure uh, DNA on a, a knife sheath. This is not some bullet that was laying somewhere in the vicinity of the body, bodies of two dead girls. This is they track these movements, they track these obscure burner phones and there's more that we'll get to in just a second. With Marine Brainerd Barnes, who he is not charged with yet. As we described, she's last seen on July 9th in New York City. At that time, everybody believes that she's working as a sex worker. On July 6th, 2007, her cell phone gets contacted by a burner cell phone. Between July 6th and July 9th, there are 16 interactions between the same burner cell phone and Marine cell phone. On July 9th, the last cell site location for Marine cell phone is at pro- approximately midnight in Midtown Manhattan near the 59th Street Bridge. After that, Marine cell phone has no further activity until July the 12th. On July 12th, three days after her disappearance, two outbound, outbound phone calls are made from uh, Marine's cell phone, and they are checking her voicemail from a cell site location that is near the Long Island Expressway in Islandia. So that's Maureen. He's not even charged for her yet. But it's a pattern we're going to see here in the next couple of pages. Melissa. Melissa goes missing July 10th. She's gone from New York City. Same thing as above. She's believed to have been working as a sex worker. On July 3rd, seven days earlier, she was contacted by a burner cell phone. After that, her cell phone is contacted by this burner cell phone. On July 6th, July 9th, and July 10th. On July 10th, cell site records indicate, and this is all from the FBI cast team. I don't know if they say that specifically here, but they did say at the press conference. And the cast team, this is their thing. This is what they do. They, They indicate that the burner cell phone traveled from Massapequa Park to Midtown Manhattan. And later that evening, Melissa's cell phone travels from Midtown Manhattan out to Massapequa Park. The last cell site location on July 11, 2009 is in Massapequa. It's at approximately one forty-three a.m. On July 11, 2009, Ms. Uh, Bartholomew's cell phone is used to make an outbound call checking her voicemail from a cell site location over in Freeport, July, on July 11th and July 12th of 2009, Melissa's phone makes two more outbound calls, and all it's doing is checking her voicemail. Those cell site locations were in Babylon. And again, this is all you can see the images on a map if you want to go and check this out. July 17th, July 23rd, August 5th, August 19th, and August 26th, Melissa's phone is making these phone calls to Melissa's family some of which result in a conversation between the caller described as male and relatives of Melissa, in which a male caller admits that he has killed and sexually assaulted Melissa. The cell site locations of Melissa's phone during these taunting calls were all in Midtown Manhattan. Megan Waterman, she's last seen alive at a Holiday Inn in New York. And that's June 6th of 2010. And that's around 1.30 in the morning. At that time, it's believed like everybody else that she was working as a sex worker. So June 5th, she gets contacted by another burner cell phone. That burner cell phone had been activated the same day that it contacts Megan's cell phone. So her phone communicates with this cell phone on June 6th at approximately uh, 1.31 a.m. This is around the time that Megan Waterman is captured on video surveillance leaving the Holiday Inn for the last time. Following this communication, this cell phone has no further phone activity whatsoever. That's the burner phone. Cell site records show that Megan's phone travels over to Massapequa Park with the last cell site location being in Massapequa Park at approximately 3:11 a.m. and it's in the vicinity of the residence of the defendant here so then we move over to Amber Costello to me in some ways Amber Costello provides the most information I would say wouldn't you yes okay She's last seen alive on September 2nd, 2010, when she leaves her residence in West Babylon. It's late at night. At the time, just like the other three, it's believed she was working as a sex worker. September 1st, 2010, the day before, Amber Costello's cell phone is contacted by a burner cell phone. This burner cell phone had communication with Amber's phone at around 11.33 and 11.34 p.m. During those communications, the burner cell phone connects to cell site towers in West Amityville and then over at Massapequa Park. After that, the burner cell phone travels to West Babylon to the general area of the residence of where Amber was living at the time. And it makes contact with Amber in the... September 2nd, 2010 hours of around 12.05 to 12.10 a.m. So basically, this phone is talking to her phone at the end of September 1st and the beginning of September the 2nd. So according to witnesses, around the time for these communications between the burner cell phone and Amber's phone, a client showed up. At Miss Costello's residence in West Babylon. So she was working out of her house. After the client entered the home, a ruse, which is what you were describing, was executed on the client where a person pretended be, to be the outraged boyfriend of Amber. And the client left, but he had already paid Amber and she kept the money for services. Based upon the interviews, the client was described as a large white male that was six foot four to six foot six in height, with dark bushy hair in his mid-40s and big oval style 1970s type eyeglasses. A witness described him to police as appearing to be an ogre. Furthermore, a witness noticed a first generation Chevy avalanche parked in the driveway of the residence. According to the witness following the ruse, this client said he was just her friend and said, tell her I'll give her a call and walked out the front door. After this, at approximately 118 a.m. on September the 2nd, after the ruse, the burner cell phone sends a text message to Amber that stated, that was not nice to do. I expect credit for next time. Phone records show that The burner phone was located at that time at Massapequa Park within two minutes of this text message being sent. According to a witness, later the next day on September 2nd, 2010, Mrs. Costello was again contacted by the same client that was in the house the night before. And this is where that Chevy Avalanche comes up. Amber told us he wanted to see her again, but he didn't want to come back to the house because of her boyfriend. Is in quotes here. It doesn't explain how this all fits in yet, but we're getting there. So on September 2nd, 2010, at around 9.32 p.m., the same burner phone from the previous evening again contacts Amber's phone. During this communication, the burner phone is located in Midtown Manhattan, and it's using a nearby cell site. Following this, and based upon the cell site records, the burner phone travels to Massapequa Park, and it has multiple contacts with a Costello phone uh, at 10.39 p.m. and 11.05 p.m. Cell site records for the burner phone indicate that approximately 11.17 p.m., the phone has traveled over to West Babylon, and it's in close proximity to Amber's residence. Subsequently, Amber leaves her cell phone behind. She leaves the residence, and she's seen for the last time. Shortly after... Mrs. Costello leaves the house. A witness observes a dark colored truck pass the house, coming from the direction that Amber had just walked in. Okay, now we get into some more significant things here. Do you have any comments on what I said so far? I'm just kind of like setting the scene here. Right.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, so this is important. The defendant's wife. Has a lot of travel records. So the next section is records that establish that the defendant's wife was out of New York during the disappearances of Melissa, Megan, and Amber. Uh, significantly, travel records show that on July 8, 2009, the wife had departed the U.S. for Iceland. On August 18, 2009, she returns. Consequently, the wife being out of the country during the time of Melissa's disappearance. Based upon the billing records on June 4th, 2010, her phone traveled from New York to Maryland. This is the wife's phone. So on June 8th, 2010, that cell phone returns. Based upon cellular telephone records, the phone that The wife is using And I'm not using her name Because I don't feel like that's really fair Uh, It's not in here Um, I came across it when I was researching him Um, I would rather people not use it right now Because she's kind of probably An additional victim in all of this So she returns to New York She would have been gone Basically during Megan Waterman's Disappearance is the point here And so with relation to Amber Costello Based upon the wife's cell phone records she leaves on august 28th and she goes from new york to new jersey and then she doesn't come back until september 5th so at the time of amber's disappearance the wife's out of town in fact the wife's out of town for all three of these right so if we follow his billing records um it's a giant mess right now uh, here's what it says, like in the bail application. During the times of the disappearances and the murders of the victims, uh, the defendant owned an architectural business located in Midtown Manhattan. This business was the name subscriber for the phone. The phone is active during the times of the disappearances and subscribed to his home address in Massapequa Park. Although the cell site records from that time period they don't currently exist. Investigators were able to obtain billing records, which showed general location information for the defendant's cell phone. A review of these records, as well as the American Express records, showed numerous instances where the defendant was located in the same general location as the burner cell phones used to contact the victims. That's going to be Melissa, Megan, and Amber. Now, he's also found to be in the same general location as when Maureen's phone and Melissa's cell phones were being used to both check like their own voicemail post-disappearance and to make taunting phone calls after they had disappeared. The investigators, they could find no instance where the defendant was in a separate location from these other phones, meaning the burner phones and the victim's phones, when such a communication event occurred. So basically, they can't separate him from these communications that are happening related to the victims.
1: Which is exactly what I would have tried to do, because I always try to do the opposite of what I'm trying to accomplish. So. Basically, I would be trying to prove it wasn't him, right? right which is not necessarily the best way to go. but my I have a tendency to kind of run wild with my you know imagination, and so I find that that kind of hones that in to be more credible if i if I look for things like because if they could possibly separate the phones, I mean that doesn't discount him completely, but that starts like sort of a different path because.
0: You is know, there an happened? accomplice? Like, why is this happening? Yeah.
1: And so because of that, um, it it's telling to me, right?
0: Right. Well, they give examples here, and they're pretty simple. But it says, for example, July tenth, two 2009, the last day that Melissa was seen alive, the burner phone and the defendant's phone are in the area of Massapequa, and they travel together towards New York City. Afterwards, Melissa's phone... And the defendant's phone, they traveled together eastbound, and that's taking them to Massapequa on July 14, thousand nine, which is around seven fifteen p.m. The burner phone, which was used to contact Melissa prior to her disappearance, has some activity in Manhattan, and on the same date, between roughly that time, about seven and seven thirty billing records from the defendant's phone all show locations inside of New York City. And New York City is huge, but that's like that's that's too much of a coincidence.
1: Well, and see that's part of the thing. They're establishing this pattern, right? This sort yeah. of back and forth pattern that like while he's not the only one on earth that does it, right? Right. Um it along with all the other circumstances, right? It yeah it doesn't exclude him for sure. Right. And so this is a, you know, kind of a pile on case. I would find it very, um, convincing. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and they, they continue to give more and more examples of this in this document and it's not just convincing it's damn it.
1: Well, and you know, the description. So I think, I think that you, you had said that Amber Costello, um, gave more than anything, right, uh, her situation. And, you know, I I don't know that we've gotten there yet, but as the circumstances pile on, some of them can't be explained away, right? Like the whole truck thing, and then they actually found the actual truck. Yeah. Even though he didn't own it any longer. And, you know, that's just too much to ignore. And that happened right before she went missing. Yeah. Yeah. And so, of course, it it can't just be like, oh, that's just a coincidence. There's no way.
0: I'm going to jump off of the cell phone data for a minute, and I'll just say the cell phone data of the victims, it lines up pretty perfectly with what they're saying is the – the the defendant's cell phones.
1: And so what do you think, since we're getting off the cell phone data, I just want to ask you really quick, what do you think of him using the cell phones to make the calls like he did? Because that was actually one of the things that um, made us, you know, see if Keys could possibly be be responsible for any of these murders, right?
0: Yeah, it, it makes me think that like, this guy's much more of a loony tune than I realized. And there are a lot more loony tunes out there than I realized. Cause this is something the Zodiac did and the golden state killer did where they were taunting the press, taunting the police. This goes back like a lot of time, but like, I haven't seen a lot of examples of actual serial killers doing that kind of like brazen insanity. And I'll tell you what I think it is. I think they're getting off On the fact that they took this person. They're the only one with the information. And they're able to taunt the family. I think they're able to relive the crime. To some degree.
1: Wow. That is just. uh, I I don't know that I'm ever going to be able to. You know really wrap my head around that. I remember. uh, Especially with the sister. Right. The sister was um, called. And she was young. And I felt like. You know, just salt and a wound, right? I mean, it was so terrible that essentially, because the fo- the calls were coming from their loved one's phone, right?
0: Yeah, that makes it a little bit uh, more complicated. They're getting, yeah, it's similar to like the Samantha Koenig situation where the ransom
1: direction
0: comes from her phone.
1: Right. And so, because um, they were getting calls from their loved one's phone and, you know, the nature of the calls, which is just awful. Lee, I mean, because this would have been well before they were found, right? Um, and because some of them were missing like upwards of a year, right? Because they weren't found until the end of uh, 2010, right?
0: Right. They're all found after Shannon Gilroy goes missing.
1: Right. And so, um, and, you know, they went missing uh, in 07, which that one's not yet connected, but then in 09 and then 10. Right. And so because of that, it, their loved one knew something bad had happened to them. Right. And it was agonizing, I'm sure, because, just using their phone, which it was a little different back then, I guess I mean it it we're talking about you know 13 ish years ago, a little more and people weren't as glued to their cell phones and everybody didn't have smartphones yet but right right um, the fact that somebody had their loved one's phone and was calling on it was like an it would be an immediate flag, right.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, like, it, like even just acquaintances. If somebody started calling me from your phone number, I would have serious concerns about it. Now,
1: right? right. Yeah, exactly.
0: So, okay. And the reason I'm I'm using this document because it's the most concentrated um, source of information right now. In case people are wondering why I'm using a bail application.
4: <laughs>
1: Well, and it's official, like, because this was filed with the court. So when something's now that doesn't mean there can't be like, you know, some sort of mistake or something wrong. Uh, But for the most part, this is taken as fact right now. It's not an order. Right. It's just it's it's the prosecution's response to a request for bail or something like that. Right.
0: It's a, yeah, it's a prosecution's response to the bail application because they want to make sure this guy doesn't get out. Um, and we're getting to, like, why that is here in just a minute. We're about halfway through, and I'm going to zip through, like, some of the rest of it. Um, so they start piling on at this point, and they point out their additional burner phones and online activity that's linked to the defendant. Okay, this is where it gets super interesting for me they allege just right out that the defendant and this this also shows like some of the investigation that's been going on they allege that the defendant has been using multiple fictitious names and using them for illicit activities his american express records indicate that he had set up recurring google payment accounts like google pay to tinder so he's using an online dating geosocial networking application to find dates and hookups within the immediate vicinity. And what that means is this guy has set um, basically a a distance meter and he's still meeting people. Okay. That is happening all the way back when these murders are happening. And according to this press conference, still happening today. So.
1: Probably not today.
0: Well, not today, but. More recently. Okay, so they subpoena Tinder, they subpoena American Express, and they subpoena all these phone companies. And what they come back with is he has a Tinder profile set up in the name of Andy. Now, his middle name is Andrew. So it's Rex Andrew Yerman, And that links to one of the burner cell phone numbers. And then he is using the fictitious name of Andrew Roberts, uh, which is an email account that is andrewroberts at AOL.com. I don't know if I'm supposed to say that because they're blurring a lot of this out. But Andrew Roberts at AOL.com had been established with AOL in January of 2011. Keep that in mind, 2011. He also had John Springfield at AOL.com. Established in 2011, that's got an Astoria, Queens zip code and that's a different burner cell phone and the records there show no name subscribers. So he was really trying to hide everything. Now, then they go over and they subpoena Verizon and they show that he has a cell phone set up in December 11th, 2022, which has multiple hours of access to these fictitious accounts, specifically the AOL accounts, Andrew Roberts at AOL.com and John Springfield at AOL.com. And he's got some other accounts that are associated with those names. Then they go to T-Mobile and they send them a subpoena and that shows that this burner cell phone number, and I'm not gonna give that out. It's been used on multiple dates, including November 8th of 2022, to access these common AOL and Tinder accounts. A review of the call records for these two additional burner cell phones, it it reveals that both cell phones are used extensively between 2021 and 2023 for prostitution related contacts with sex workers and what's known as happy ending massage parlors. In addition, the cell sites which they get through warrants for these burner cell phone numbers, they reveal that just like the burner cell phones that the defendant had used to contact the victims prior to their disappearance, these additional burner phones had frequent cell site activity in Midtown Manhattan and Massapequa Park, hitting on the same towers. Specifically, the records reveal that both these burner cell phones consistently had activity on the cellular towers that provided coverage to the defendant's residence in Massapequa Park, and his office in New York City. Then, they serve a legal process on Google, seeking records on accounts associated with this device. And if anyone has heard me talk about this recently, Google has all sorts of information on you, even if you don't have a Google account. Now, the identifiers here on these additional burner cell phones connect to yet another burner cell phone and a junk email account. Now, the burner or junk email account, um, we're going to call it the Thawk email account. And that's T H A W K. And the reason I'm going to call it that is because that's what the prosecution calls that. The Thawk email account is thought to stand for T Hawk or Thomas Hawk. Google records further indicate that the Thomas Hawk email account, subscribed in the f- fictitious name Thomas Hawk, is, is being used quite a bit when they do a search warrant specifically for that email account, which is associated with another burner cell phone, they find thousands of searches related to sex, sex workers, sadism, torture porn, and potential child pornography or child sexual abuse materials. They give us a 30 list, um, keyword search right here on page uh, 18 of this. And so here's, here's that one through 30. Number one, mistress on Long Island. Number two, mature escorts of Manhattan. Number three, girl begging for rape porn. Number four, teen girl begging for rape porn. Number five, pretty girl with bruised face porn. Number six, torture redhead porn. Number seven... 10-year-old schoolgirl. Number eight, hinta plump, word redacted, indicating a vagina, lips cut off porn. Number nine, skinny redhead tied up porn. Number 10, short fat girl tied up porn with porn misspelled. 11, tied up and raped porn. 12, Asian twink tied up porn 13 tied slave force fed porn um, 14 come shot crying porn 15 girl hog tied torture porn 16 10 year old blonde girl porn 17 chubby 10 year old girl 18 black girl 10 years old 19 girl with face beat up 20, chubby 10-year-old girl crying, 21, 13-year-old schoolgirl, 22, age 12, child girl, blonde hair, blue eyes, 23, blonde hair girl, young depressed, 24, teen girl, oiled up body, 25, preteen girl makeup, 26, nude slave girls, 27, Old janitor's little schoolgirl, 28, crying girl, painful, I'm not even saying the last word in that one, 29, schoolgirl, 30, crying teen porn. In excess of 200 searches between March 2022, 20, so March 2022 and June 2023, they also had searches related to active and known serial killers, the specific disappearances, and murders of Maureen, Melissa, Megan, and Amber, and the investigation into their murders. These searches or articles access, but are not limited to. Then we have another 24 search terms. The first one is, why could law enforcement not trace the calls made by the Long Island serial killer? Turns out they can. Two... Why hasn't the Long Island serial killer been caught? Three, Long Island killer. Four, Long Island serial killer phone call. Five, Long Island serial killer update. Six, Long Island serial killer update 2022. Seven, FBI active serial killers. Eight, serial killers by state 2023. Nine, map of all known serial killers. Ten, unsolved serial killer cases. 11, America's 5 Most Notorious Old Cases. 12, 11 currently active serial killers. 13, 8 terrifying active serial killers we can't find. 14, John Bittroff, who is one of the suspects in the Long Island serial killers that's been bandied about over the years. 15, Megan Waterman. 16, Melissa Bethelmy. 17, Marine Brainerd Barnes. 18 and 19, I'm not going to name them, but these are the relatives of Melissa and of Megan, um, and it's their name specifically being searched for. 20, Cops Launched Gilgo Beach Homicide Investigation Task Force. 21, Mapping the Long Island Murder Victims. 22, Inside the Long Island Serial Killer in Gilgo Beach. 23, Gilgo Beach Killer on Criminal Minds. 24, Long Island Serial Killer Investigation. New phone technology may be key to break the case. These are the searches this guy was putting on his phone. So the first search, I Um, have, go ahead. I
1: just want to point out, um, it was searches or articles accessed um because some of these is kind of like why would you search for that but some of them are just the articles possibly that came up from some of these searches right
0: right so the first one that first list of like pornography terms i have nothing like that in my phone the second list of all the serial killer things that's pretty much my browser history
1: i have so much stuff i feel like i have like a good um because I would just say, well, it's research for my podcast, right? I mean, and then yeah, I, it's true. I would be like, we have like 185 episodes. You can go listen, and you will see that the research correlates, right? Not that I'm ever going to be like thought to be a serial killer or anything. Now, okay, I I just I want to point this out because I feel like it's important. Now that was under thawk, which was Thomas Hawk, right? Correct.
0: Yeah, this is the Tomatalk account.
1: It's like a pretend identity that um, this guy has come up with. Um, I feel like I feel like uh, he most certainly was not as slick as he thought he was. No,
0: not even close. No.
1: And it—he could have literally just done all this stuff from like one device under one name right, the yep. way it all came together. And, but you can tell he's covering his tracks or trying to. And what do you – so, okay, this specifically, like, why could law enforcement not trace the calls made by the Long Island serial killer, right? I feel like I wouldn't want to know that if I was
0: him. I, you know, I looked at it – I tried to look at it from that perspective and go, maybe – maybe this is, I, this is too much adding up against this guy.
1: Well, right. And to me, um, he was trying to keep up with what was going on. I'm not entirely certain that um, he he might've been enjoying the attention of them not knowing it was him, right? Something like that. Um, but it also could be that he was trying to stay a step ahead or trying to, I initially thought when I saw all of that, like, serial killer type searches that like he was trying to see like what he could possibly like pen it on. Right.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and
0: yeah, he was looking at podcasts and documentaries that covered the investigation. That's basically page 20 of this bail application.
1: Yeah. And so, (laughs) um, it's, it is a lot, but I mean, that stuff is not as, uh, damning to me, but Along with everything else, it is very damning. And the fact that he's using an alternate identity, right? Yeah. It's just weird. Like, just be who you are and just search on your own Google account and don't worry about it. Because they're going to find it out apparently
0: anyway. Yeah. So what they do here is the next couple of pages of this bail application are basically their selfies that uh, the defendant used on his phones, his burners, his dating profiles if you want to call him that he was using dating apps, but not for dating. They are um, surveillance photos of him in different stores, getting the burner phones that are associated with all of this.
1: And so it's basically just like taking away any sort of doubt anybody might have that he was actually the one using the burner phones. Right.
0: Yeah. That's really what they're doing here. So then they, they're sitting here and like they're going through 2020, 2021, 2022. So this is post pandemic, which means this is highly removed from the victims that he's arrested for. And I'm pointing that out because what I believe is the crux of this arrest, like what I believe is happening here is I think I think they think he was ramping up again.
1: Well, I do too, but I also I'm not entirely sure he stopped. Ever stopped, or that he? I mean, if it's going to be really bad, if he committed any sort of crime while they had information that they could have taken before a grand jury, right? Like before now. I don't know how the timeline falls. I understand that, like, they really, like, as much as they want to nail whoever did this, like, they they don't want to mess the case up, right? Um, but I'm a leery of what I was hearing, because to me, it seemed like they skated around for quite a while. And then I also feel like, I know that the DNA technology they talk about, have we talked about that yet?
0: No, we're getting there. We're we're okay. just finishing up the phones right now.
1: I'm sorry, but so no, no, anyway, you're fine. I know that the DNA technology they're talking about, like when it was found versus when it was sent back and subsequently, you know, tested. The gap in technology is not that long. It was a delay on you know their part. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs>
0: okay, so all right, I'll just say that you know you get a page and a half in here. They are so specific with how they track down Thomas Hawk and Andy Roberts to the ISPs, the mail service providers, the phone service providers. They dig really deep into this. Great,
1: and he's not going to be able to coincidence this away. Like, it would literally have to be somebody else that looked like an ogre that drove a Chevy Avalanche that was specifically trying to set him up, and he's just not going to find that, right?
0: Yeah, using his burner phones and his email addresses that he has created that track to essentially the defendant's home IP address, because what they're able to do, they cross-reference where he goes and buys plane tickets— with multiple different sites related to these Google searches, related to internet service providers, related to these apps that he's using. I'm, honestly, I'm afraid to use the internet anymore.
1: I'm not because I don't do anything wrong.
0: I, I don't want to know that, that people can, well, I'm saying from the perspective of what I Google, it's, I don't it's want people scary. tracking me. It's just wild.
1: Well, and so for the sort of record, um, this is a unique situation. Now, I, I'm not. I've seen it on smaller levels, right? But this also took a really long time, right? This it was did. A long time coming, and sort of on the, you know, and right now he's at three, uh, you know, charges against. Uh, six three
0: charges, victims. three victims. Yeah, I'm
1: sorry. Six charges against three victims with another two against another one probably coming down the pipe, right? And so Yeah, we're going to get
0: to that in just a second.
1: Because of that, you know, they pulled out all the stops on this. Um, it really took a lot of work. This is an intensive task force investigation, and um, I read it thoroughly, and I'm convinced that there's enough. I, well, and then even more so... This wasn't just a police officer making an arrest. They took this to the grand jury. He was indicted. Correct. And that's the best way to bring somebody to court on a murder charge or multiple murder charges is to have a grand jury indict them.
0: Yeah. All all of their eyes are on it. That way, just in case you miss something. What's interesting about this case is... The Suffolk County Police Department was monitoring their own website to see who came there. And this guy's among the people that came there to hunt around. When they made announcements in the news, he was there. So he's logging on and, like, uh, you know, to his own personal things using the same IP address of repeated visits to the site over the course of eight weeks. This is how they wrap up the technological aspect of this bail application. When analyzing the usage of all the devices and accounts used by the defendant, there appears to be a clear pattern wherein the defendant used burner phones, burner and junk email addresses to, one, contact sex workers, sex partners, and to conduct extensive searches related to sex, prostitution, violent, sadistic, and child pornography. And three, so something missing. The two is not in there. Um, I think it's contact sex workers, sex partners, to conduct extensive searches related to sex, and two, prostitution, violence, sadistic and child pornography. Three, to seek online information about the, authority, of the, about the authorities who are investigating his crimes. These burner cell phones and email accounts with fictitious identities were used in an effort to conceal the defendant's true identity, conceal his criminal activity, his unlawfully position. Pro- propositioning sex workers and attempting to monitor the investigation of his crimes or inserting himself. Then they get into the real stuff. So we're there and that's enough for me to go, well, we probably need a trial, but then they get into the real deal.
1: Well, right. And to me, this is really where it's at.
0: Okay. So here's what we have right up front. DNA analysis of hairs recovered from the examination of victims' bodies during the course of this investigation, each of the four victims' bodies were examined by a forensic scientist with Suffolk County Crime Lab. So they're including Maureen here. And here's what that revealed. Marine had been restrained by three leather belts, one of which was utilized to tie her feet and ankles together. During the examination of the belts, a female human hair was recovered from the buckle of one of the belts by the Suffolk County Crime Lab. On or about December 18th, 2010, the crime lab, they examined this hair. They were able to determine that it corresponded to a Caucasian head hair fragment. Although this hair was not suitable for nuclear profiling at this time, it was submitted for further DNA analysis. And they talk about that a little later. Megan Waterman had been bound by clear or white duct tape. During the course of the examination of her body, two female human hairs are recovered, one from outside the head area and the other from the tape of the head area. Both hairs were recovered in the vicinity of Miss Waterman's head. Examination by the Suffolk County Laboratory indicated the two female hairs on Waterman exhibited Caucasian or European characteristics, but were unsuitable for further DNA testing at the time. The two female hairs on Megan Waterman were subsequently submitted for further DNA analysis. Amber Costello, an examination of her body revealed that she appeared to have been bound by three pieces of clear or white duct tape. During the course of the examination of her body, a female human hair was recovered on a piece of tape inside a burlap wrapping in the vicinity of her head. A subsequent examination of the female hair led to the determination that it had Caucasian that it had Caucasian or European characteristics. However, it was unsuitable for further DNA testing at the top. They then determined that some of these hairs are suitable to be submitted, and subsequently they are, for further DNA analysis. As noted above, The female hair on Barnes, the two female hairs on Waterman, and the female hair on Costello were all sent to an outside forensic laboratory that we're going to call Forensic Lab Number One. Forensic Lab Number One applied DNA techniques and direct genome sequencing in difficult to solve forensic casework and the identification of human remains. In or about July 2022, uh, forensic lab number one was able to determine that each of the aforementioned female hairs recovered on the three victims belonged to a female individual in mitochondrial haplogroup K1C2 and that this female was not any of the victims. On or about July 22nd, of 2022, an undercover detective from the Suffolk County Police Department recovered 11 bottles from a trash receptacle that had been left for collection in front of the residence of the defendant. That's a year ago. The crime lab took swabs of the bottles and subsequently they sent them to forensic lab one for DNA profiling. Based on these submissions, on or about February 24, 2023, forensic lab one was able to conclude that one of the DNA DNA profiles generated from the aforementioned bottles taken from the defendant's residence included a female belonging to mitochondrial haplogroup K1C2, which is the same haplogroup as the female hairs recovered from the three victims. This profile was then compared against the previously tested female hair sample recovered on the remains of Ms. Waterman, which indicated that the two belonged to the same individual or someone closely related to them. Based upon investigation and evidence recovered to date, that female is believed to be the wife of the defendant. Do you know what all of that means?
1: Yes. Do you?
0: Yes. Yes, I do now because I've been doing a lot of work today. (laughs) So then we have forensic lab number two, March 23rd, 2023, this year, The Suffolk County Crime Lab requested that forensic lab number two, they specialize in forensic mitochondrial analysis, that they conduct an additional independent analysis. And on or about June 12th of 2023, forensic lab two issued a report concluding that the DNA sample from the female recovered from the bottles outside the residence of the defendant and we're going to assume in parenthetical expression that that is the defendant's wife. And then the female hairs on Amber indicate that the mitochondrial DNA profiles are, are the same all compared positions common to and between samples, specifically at a rate that would basically per the database they were using, which they used the. Uh, European DNA profile group mitochondrial DNA population database or MPOP exclude 99.98% of the North American population from the female hair. That is a hell of a confidence level.
1: Well, it is. um, And I've had these discussions with people and I, and I'm not very good at explaining it. I understand what it means, but because you know the argument can be made of how many people that 0.02% is, right?
0: Yeah.
1: And it's not. I mean, it's it's. I don't know what the number is. Um, but
0: exclusion number or.
1: I don't know what that 0.02% is because you're talking about the female population, right?
0: Yeah. And so that would change North America. Yeah.
1: Okay, and so. Um, it, so the number would be substantial, and people will say that's not good enough. The, the issue is um, this isn't a, like, this isn't a test where you're trying to find plucking out of obscurity, right, a person that belongs in this group. You're doing a direct comparison, right?
0: Yeah, and you so, have two samples that you're comparing between. Absolutely.
1: Right. And so the the statistical odds of them matching are very, very low. Okay. Yes. And so that's where um I can't and I can never quite explain it in a way that can end an argument, but I don't really argue. I just want people to completely understand stuff. But it could be like a whole the whole world could be there and you're gonna have a very small amount of people that's going to um, match, right? Yeah. And the fact that you were able to conduct this direct match and they match each other, one cannot be excluded as being part of this group, right? It means that like you're onto something, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah, and it, they go a little bit further here. Um, they do one more comparison on this between Forensic Lab 1 and Forensic Lab 2. And then the conclusion for that section, because we're going to move on to something else based on what they said above that I was just talking to you about and them excluding everyone else from being the female hair that is associated with Amber's body and with Megan Waterman's body. They decided they cannot exclude the defendant's wife and they note that the defendant's wife, as previously mentioned, is out of state at the time of their disappearance and murders.
1: Do you think that the uh, the his wife's hair was an oversight
0: on his part? Right. Yeah. Like, do you? I mean, because it it's strange. It is strange. I'm not, I don't know what I think about that yet, but their conclusion line is, as such, it is likely that the burlap tape vehicles or other instrumentals utilized in furtherance of these murders came from the defendant's residence where the wife also resides or was transferred off of his clothing.
1: I think that it probably came from the vehicle. That's what I'm thinking. Uh, she, cause, uh, well, from what I've seen, uh, she has long hair and yeah. I know from experience that long hair ends up everywhere. And if you're it around does. it a lot, you don't even notice it.
0: Yep. And uh, I have the same experience with my wife. Is that enough of a, a determining factor for you or do you need one more thing? Cause I'll give you one more
1: thing. I'll take one more thing, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I feel like, uh, really, I mean, somebody could explain this away if it's all it was.
0: All right. All right. I'll give you one more thing. <laughs> last, last item on my list. During the, uh, during the initial examination of Megan's skeletal remains and the material she was wrapped in, the Suffolk County Crime Lab came up with a single male hair from the bottom of the burlap that had been used to wrap her body. On initial examination, the said hair revealed Caucasian and European characteristics, but the hair was unsuitable for further DNA analysis at the time, so they waited until technology caught up with them. This hair was submitted for further DNA analysis on or about July 31st, 2020. Forensic lab number one that we already talked about, they were able to generate a DNA profile for the hair that was recovered from the bottom of that burlap. Specifically, they determined that this hair group belonged to a male in mitochondrial haplogroup V7A. Following the discovery of the Chevrolet avalanche, which was registered to the defendant, and the investigation of all these cellular records we were talking about, they decided that they would recover something from him. In honor of about January 26, 2023, A surveillance team observed and recovered a pizza box thrown away by the defendant into a garbage can located in front of 385 Fifth Avenue in Manhattan. And then they give us a bunch of pictures of the trash can and the pizza box documenting how they got it. This pizza box was sent to the Suffolk County crime lab for analysis where a swab was taken from the leftover pizza crust on or about March 23rd, 2023, the Suffolk County Crime Lab sent the swap from the pizza crust, which was abandoned by the defendant, to forensic lab number two. And guess what that said? That it matched him. 99.96% <clears throat> match came back on June 12, 2023, between the defendant and the male hair that was found on Megan Waterman. And then they go on to describe the fact that this guy has 92 gun permits. Oh, 92. I just want to throw that out there. Wait, because a I, is
1: that in here?
0: It's on page 31.
1: Oh, did you find page 31?
0: Nope. Going by what they said in the press conference and the fact that it wraps up saying <laughs> surveillance, access, history of possessing firearms. People believe the only means to ensure the defendant's oh. return to court is to remand the defendant. And it without bail the okay day, yes it was the firearms
1: okay yeah you're right um he had 92 <laughs> and they yes. slid that in like it was nothing yeah
0: I mean, okay all right i don't want to get into this whole thing but like guns are owned right by people guns,
1: guns are owned by people but 92 what? is a lot
0: that is like this guy spent his entire
1: life collecting them
0: or pension on them, uh, he, you know. He you he with the high school with the Baldwin brothers. I just want to throw that out there.
1: I know. I think everybody on Earth knows that.
0: I was just looking at that, going, "What?" And he looks exactly the same kind of like Shrek in all of his pictures and his yearbook photos <laughs> and his like architect. He's just Shrek. Shrek's just walking around in a three piece suit.
1: Um, well, Shrek was a serial killer. And uh, from what I gather, a very scary one. Now, did you notice anything that was, um, like, obviously missing except for page 31? Uh, there's, It's possible it came up. But, like, did you notice that, like, basically there's nothing that indicates um, what was uh, found with Melissa Bartholomew? What do you mean? like she there's no DNA evidence with her she's not included in
0: any of this but I mean she's included in the charges
1: right I know but like it's odd to me that uh, Maureen is included uh, in the information right all I can think is that maybe um, Melissa was uh, more decomposed Uh, her remains might have not been in uh as retrievable shape as the others. I'm not really sure what happened there, but did you notice? Did I miss it?
0: I thought she was going to be tied back to the belt. To what? The belt. Huh. There was a belt. Remember it said HM on it or WH. We weren't sure what it said. We now know it's WH because Herman is the H and it's (laughs) going to be related back to, I think his dad or his brother. I think it's his dad. And they think, don't
1: put that in here, but like, there's no. very little information with what um, is tying him to uh, Melissa, right?
0: Yeah, there's not a lot in here. Well, so okay, I I jumped around a little bit, but I was talking about the different things related to the cell phone records. So they, right. as far as you talking about like DNA evidence or hair evidence or something,
1: I just found it odd that well, they've all. Oh, but let's see, Melissa is the one who he like admitted to the family that he was harassing right that he had killed her or whatever yeah they they, so they connected the cell phone there so that's a little bit it has more weight than the other um because you know having talked to family members and said that he killed her or something but um I just found it odd I'm not saying anything that like, would contradict the fact that he's been charged with her murder. I just think it's odd that they didn't find anything.
0: Um, so there's a number of things here that tie to Melissa's case. I agree with you. They don't They don't show us – so they show that the wife was out of town. They show us that there's communications with the cell phone and the direction of travel. There, You're right. There's no hair. There's no DNA that's listed here. Um, But the phones travel together. There's the phone calls to the family. There are things that circumstantially tie him here. And in the images, I don't know if you saw this, but they also dropped in like the different cell phone records. Right, yeah. And I I I think, go ahead.
1: I guess what I was thinking is for like one of them to be left out, it seems odd that it was Maureen, right? I don't mean to laugh. Not funny. No,
0: no, no. I mean, this like, whole thing is like bizarre to read. It's really, it, it really it, is. This is happening in real time for us. And, um, you know, it, it just seems a odd. That, yeah.
1: that Marine is, you know, they're, they're on the fence about her. Uh, like it, and you know, this is coming from a grand jury. This is not, um, anybody else's decision. They were, you know, the, it was a secret grand jury proceeding, um, And they discussed in the press conference how um, they felt like that that was key, like the secrecy of it was key. I don't really know what that meant, except I know, like, the investigation um, previously, I know it's been through several kind of top brass dealing with it because it has gone on for quite a while now. And, you know, there was allegations that, you know, the investigation had stalled or it was being redirected or misled or there's been all kinds of stuff that has come up about it. Right. Yeah. And you know, it's all just, and you can't really say anything because like you can't blame a victim's family for being upset. Right. Right. Um, Especially in the way that this happened, it was just so bizarre. And I would have loved to know where he was, like, the day that those bodies were found.
0: Yeah, they said he was surprised. That's what one of the comments. And I guess, I mean, what do you think? Should I go ahead and play the whole press conference so people can hear it? It's going to make us well, a really long episode. I, I mean, don't,
1: why not?
0: Um, I'll put a link in the show notes if you don't listen to the whole thing on here. Um, and then I'll go through and record it. It's very long. Uh, I will record it and preserve it here as well. Uh, that's all I have on this for now, but this is going to be one I want to watch because this is one of the. So, you know, people talk about it all the time like, oh, all the serial killers are gone. There's no serial killers left. Well, here you go. Here you go, guys. This is your answer. They walk around in midtown Manhattan pretending to be an architectural consultant. That's where the serial killers are. Thank you so much for joining us today. We'll see you next time. <laughs> think we need I, a long one here we, we're not gonna say her, are we gonna say her name yet not, no you, but i what? will
1: say this i will say that i did um in the press conference it was mentioned that um part of the reason why maureen had was not included in the charges just yet was because she she was what would be considered an outlier and the reason was she was in 2007 while the other girls were in or 9 and 10 right and so right. they felt like that was a gap there that made her more of an outlier. Now, I don't think that outweighed the evidence that was presented in the uh, bail application response, right? But so when they said that, I was like, oh, no, she's not an outlier. You've missed somebody from 08, right? Oh and I my. did a, And I did a really quick search just to see what I could come up with. And what I came up with... Um, I believe I searched because you're looking at like from June to like September is when he was operating over. That's that's when his
0: wife goes on vacation.
3: Yeah.
1: Right. And so um, I looked really quick from like June to September of 08 and I did like the whole United States and I think there were 49 females missing. There's only one missing from the area that. Uh, This, you know, that could make her a possible candidate. And so uh, the initial search, there were like no, there was no information, right? Right. About her, the circumstances of her disappearance. She's just an officially missing person. But then um, when I looked it up, when I started looking further into it, um, uh, the person who I'm not naming, uh, she's the only one during from June 08 to... Uh, September oh, September 30th 08 uh, that is missing and it just happened to be mentioned somewhere that um, that she had a history of being involved in prostitution but they're not entirely sure if it's connected to her case.
0: Yeah, so and I know who you're talking about now that you shared this with me and she was on my keys list and the way she pops up on my keys list is I was looking at travel gaps and dark spots in the FBI timeline. And we had looked at like what if we were off by a year with the Deborah Feldman case and this woman popped up on there for me. But I never found enough information to to dig much into her. I found her namus, I found her Charlie project. Um, this is a great candidate for this guy, based on what you just said. And she fits because she's little. I don't remember her weight, but she's real little, right? Like five foot two or five three.
1: Well, I, uh, yeah, she's little, she fits, she fits it. I mean, to an extent, uh, but it more so than anything, she's the only one in that vicinity. And it could explain why she wasn't found. She may not be there. Uh, she may be somewhere else. Right.
3: Yeah.
1: Um, but you know, these girls all came from different places, right? They had, uh, you know, I guess, sort of a hub they had to go where the action was as far as making money or whatever um and some of the other you know cases that have come up with some of the mainstream media coverage of this you know uh it's not odd for sex workers to travel right but in looking at that span of time And like I said, it was just real quick because they said that the 2007 case was an outlier. I feel like they need to be looking for a 2008 case um, because this was a series, right?
0: Yeah.
1: Um, I also think, you know, because you think to yourself, oh, there's so many, you know, missing sex workers out there. They're really not. There's not that many. Um, Now how many are not reported who have, we have no idea. Right. But I do know just from looking really quick that there's an excellent candidate and uh, you know, I don't want to say, Oh, she's a victim of a serial killer. Cause that's terrible. But I'm just saying, I haven't named her. The circumstances of her disappearance line up exactly with the whole that the press conference revealed about the time. Right.
0: Yeah. I think that's a. I think you made a good choice there, in terms of like the potential connection, and I, I, I think that that makes the other case less of an outlier if that turns out to be true.
1: Well, right, exactly, because I don't think her case is an outlier at all.
4: Um, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you all for coming. Um, you know, I'm standing here with uh, my law enforcement partners in the Gilgo Task Force. Uh, to announce uh, the indictment of defendant Rex Andrew Heerman, 59 years of age. Uh, He's been arrested by the Suffolk County uh, Police Department's homicide detectives, and he's been indicted uh, in a grand jury uh, presentation by the the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office uh, for the murders of Melissa Bartholomew, Megan Waterman, and Amber Costello. Uh, The the investigation of Maureen Brainerd Barnes is ongoing. Uh, These young women went missing between July of 2007 and September of 2010. They were found in uh, December of 2010 by the Suffolk County Police Department, and then there was nothing, absolutely nothing. for For the next 13 years, their cases went unsolved until today. Uh, When I took office in January of 2022, I made uh, Gilgo a priority. I made Gilgo a priority before I took office. I met uh, with the victim's families, uh, some of whom I'm proud to have standing with us today, and I told them that we were going to handle this case differently. We were going to do it differently, and that when I showed up, you weren't going to see me calling the media and being on Gilgo Beach with a giant... Uh, magnifying lens, looking for clues. Twelve years after the case, what I was going to do was I was going to work with my task force. We were going to form a task force. We were going to work with the Suffolk County Police Department. We were going to work with the Suffolk County Sheriff's Office. We we're going to work with the New York State uh, Police. We we're going to work with our FBI, and we were going to form this task force and we were going to work together, and we were going to we were going to use the grand jury, the power of the grand jury to, co- to to reach a determination in this case. Because the grand jury has two things. It has power, it has reach, you could obtain documents, you could interview witnesses. But the other thing that the grand jury has, the grand jury has secrecy. No one knows what you do when you operate a grand jury proceeding. And we knew that when we were investigating this case and it, when we dealt with the media or whatever it was we were doing, um we were we were playing uh, before a party of one because we knew uh, the person responsible for these murders would be looking at us. So we were very careful uh, how we, we we handled the investigation. we maintained the integrity of the investigation. Uh, most importantly most importantly of all, we maintained the secrecy uh, of that investigation and I think that's uh, that's paid dividends uh, as we've seen today. Now, um, I, you know, I I, I think that uh, you know when we had the uh, the task force, uh, the first thing we did got together with uh, um, Suffolk County Police Commissioner Rodney Harrison, uh, and we formed the task force. Our first meeting uh, was February February first of twenty twenty two. Uh, And what we did, what all of the agencies here, we made the commitment. We were going to take our talented, our most talented investigators. So in the district attorney's office, we took uh, uh, ADAs, myself included. We took analysts, we took detective investigators, and they worked on a daily basis with other talented investigators from all of the agencies here. Um, And uh, we started that in February 1st, in 2022. Six weeks later, on March 14th, 2022, the name Rex Hurman was first mentioned as a suspect uh, in the Gilgo case. A New York State uh, investigator was able to, uh, to um, identify him in a database, uh, and from that point on, we used the power of the grand jury. Over 300 subpoenas and search warrants uh, looking into this, uh, this individual's background to bring us to this day, so I'm I am uh, I'm proud. I, I know that this case is over, but I'm proud of what we've accomplished up to this point. I know we have more to accomplish, but I'm also uh, thankful. Thankful for the partnership uh, of of the task force because certainly without the participation of the task force, we wouldn't be standing here. Um, you know, before I I you know I thank some some folks and, and turn it over to uh, to. Uh, our, our partners. I just want to talk a little bit about the, the evidence in the case. Uh, I know uh, a lot of people know about the case. As I indicated, uh, the, uh, the victims went missing between July of 2010 and September, uh, I'm sorry, July of 2007 and uh, September of 2010. Uh, and uh, in December of 2010, they were, uh, the, their, their bodies were recovered. Uh, they were buried in a similar fashion, in a similar location. Um, uh, in a, in a similar way. Uh, all the women were petite. Uh, they were, um, they, they all did the same thing for a living. Uh, they all advertised the same way. Uh, and there were, uh, immediately there were similarities with regard, uh, to the, to the, uh, the crime scenes. Uh, all the women's, all the women were bound at the head, uh, at the midsection, uh, uh or at the chest and later at the legs. Um, the other thing I think that, that, um, uh, was was uh, that's been talked about in the uh, in the media? Was they were bound by um, burlap. Uh, media, uh, that has taken a life of its own in the media, and the burlap has has been described, or thought to be uh, the burlap that's used at a nursery for. Uh, it, that's not the burlap that was used in this case. The burlap is it was camouflage burlap, uh, used for duck blinds of so hunting. Um, uh, so uh, I, obviously, it, it, it was used to hide, uh, purposely hide the bodies. Um, one thing that became immediately apparent uh, th- was at the time of the, uh, each of the murders, uh, the murderer, the, the defendant Heerman, uh he got a, a uh, he got a, a cell phone uh, and a burner phone, which uh, which is prepaid and anonymous. And for each of the murders, he got an individual burner phone, and he used that to communicate with the victims. Uh, then shortly after uh, the death of the victims, uh, he then would, uh, would get rid of the burner phone. Uh, and uh, right away, in December of 2012, uh, FBI uh, cast analysts, uh, special agents with the cast unit of the FBI, they immediately began looking at that cell site uh, uh, data they compared the victim's phones with, uh, with the burner phones, and they immediately uh, honed in on some, some sim- similarities, specifically uh, in the Massapequa Park area. And they looked at the, an area of a confluence of four cell towers, uh, and they realized that this was, had uh, significance because uh, the, the uh, perp- perpetrator of these crimes was probably located within this area uh, during, at, or around the times of the murderer, uh, and that was mapped out. That was called the box, and it was an area uh, in Massapequa Park. Uh, the FBI also managed to do that for an area in mid Midtown Manhattan, um, and so that was that was an investigative lead. The other uh, investigative lead at the time was, even though there, there was a significant amount of time that elapsed with regard to uh, before the, the the, uh, the victims were recovered. There was some uh, some significant evidence recovered. Uh, specifically, there was a uh, um, hair recovered from Maureen uh, Brainerd Barnes from a belt buckle that was around her legs. Uh, there, uh, with regard to Megan Warderman, uh, there were three hairs recovered um, f- uh, from from her. Uh, one uh, from around her head area. One from around her. Her, her leg area in the burlap, and then there was one caught in between the tape. Uh, and uh, that was recovered. Uh, Amber Costello also had a hair, a significant hair that was recovered uh, during the time uh, during the, the time of the recovery. But uh, again, uh, the crime scene, because it w- was out there for so long and because uh, it was exposed to the elements, uh, those hairs were degraded, so you couldn't use traditional DNA, um, analysis on it, you would uh, you would have to wait uh, and use mitochondrial DNA. And back in uh, 2010, the technology wasn't there for mitochondrial DNA. So the investigation proceeded, but also technology proceeded as well. Uh, and then in January, and February of 2022, we we formed the task force. We began working uh, collectively, uh, and then a mere six weeks later, on March 14th, 2022. Rex Ureman was identified for the first time. Uh, and the ma- manner in which that was done was uh, the New York State investigator looked at a database. Uh, Amber Costello, the day before her uh, disappearance on September 1st, uh, 2010, uh, she uh, uh, con- uh, she um, met with an, an individual for the purposes of, of having him pay her money uh, for, for her services. Um, but she uh, she would involve she involved herself in a ruse where once the, the individual gave her uh, gave her money and uh, other individuals came into the, the house pretended to be a significant others confronted the individual uh, with the purpose of, of making that individual uncomfortable having him leave without retrieving his money and that's exactly what happened uh, so uh, that individual was identified as, as a person who was between 6'4 and 6'6, six, six, uh, a, a large man, thickly built, not necessarily overly muscular, but just a naturally uh, big person with glasses, white, uh, and and dark hair. Uh, also of significance was um, that the fact that he was driving a dark colored black uh, av- uh, uh, first a uh, first-generation uh, Chevrolet Avalanche with a, a, a very uh, unique feature that was between the—it's the, a pickup truck, so it was between the cab and the bed—and uh, that was identified. Again, that was back uh, in uh, 2010, uh, but it, w- it wasn't until uh, March of, of, of 2022 uh, that that database uh, was, by, was 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 disc- was searched uh, by the, the task force. Uh, and this individual uh, uh, was, was identified. Uh, that, uh, that individual was uh, Rex Sherman, the defendant. Uh, and right away, there were some con- commonalities that came right to the fore. Rex Hurman, 6'4", largely uh, a large person, not necessarily uh, muscular, but a, a very uh, physically large person. Uh, he has glasses, uh, he has, he has that, the dark hair, and also a particular note, he owned, at the time, that first generation Chevy Avalanche, uh, but there was more. Uh, he lived at 105 First Avenue, which was located within that box area that the FBI first uh, discovered in, in 2012, uh, but there was more. Uh, also, he worked at the time at an architect, as an ar- and uh, he owned his own architectural firm uh, at an address at 19 West Street 6th Street in Midtown Manhattan. And that was also the area of interest that was identified by the FBI in 2012. Uh, Again, that was March 14th, uh, 2022. Uh, And from that point on, our our partners and uh, my office, we used the grand jury to continue to investigate, and we executed over 300 subpoenas, search warrants, pertaining to this individual, to find out more information. Uh, one of the things that we did is we followed him because we wanted to get an abandonment sample of his DNA, uh, which we were able to do. Uh, we also got uh, DNA samples, abandonment samples from his family. And then we went back and we got mitochondrial DNA testing. And with regard to, um, you know, and you know, uh, there's, an, itch- there's a, a, an aspect of New York state law that doesn't allow me to talk about uh, DNA testing uh, specifically at press conferences, it's, um, so I can't do that. However, at the um, at the uh, uh, arraignment, uh, and also when we filed our bail letter, we talked about the significance of that uh, evidence. So, if anyone needs to see that, but but uh, suffice to say, uh, that evidence w- was significant, uh, especially with regard to uh, the other evidence that we had developed. But it was uh, there was. Uh, another interesting aspect, we looked at the Yurman family uh, travel records. And we learned that during the murders of uh, the last three women, um, Bartholomew, Waterman, and Costello, that during the commission of those murders, the, the, uh, the defendant's wife and children were, at, were out of New York State, and he was alone in the tri-state area. Uh, we also went back and looked at his cell site records and we, were, we, we compared his personal cell site records with that of the four target phones and we saw that there was areas of commonality. In other words, that whenever the, the target phones would, uh, would, would bounce off a cell tower, if, if the uh, Uerman, uh personal phone uh, bounced off a, a, a tower, it was always consistent and in close proximity. Uh, with the target phones and at no time was there ever an instant where those target phones were for instance in New Jersey while uh, the defendant was was on Long Island. Uh, so that was completely um, uh, consistent. The other thing that we looked at was uh, we looked at his use of burner phones uh, and we we followed using the grand jury using the great investigative, Help from our partners. We followed his use of burner phones. We were able to uh, identify seven separate burner phones that he used. We were able to use fictitious uh, or fraudulent email addresses and get Google warrants. And from there, we got his searches, uh, and we learned uh, what, we, what uh, the individual, what the defendant was searching. Uh, in a 14-month period, he had over 200 searches pertaining to. Uh, the Gilgo investigation, uh, not only were those, uh, was he looking at uh, in investigative insight, uh, he was looking, trying to figure out how is the task force using cell phones to try to figure out what's happening. What are the developments with regard to the task force? And this uh, this really um, um, supported our decision to keep our investigative um, focus secret. Because we knew that one person would be watching, and we didn't want to give him uh, any insight into what we were doing. And we also didn't want him to know just how close we were getting. Uh, so we maintained the, the, the grand jury secrecy, and we maintained the integrity of our investigation. Uh, in addition to those, those uh, um, uh, Gilgo searches, he was searching, compulsively searching pictures of the victims but not only pictures of the victims, pictures of their, uh, their uh, relatives, their, their, their sisters, uh, their children. Uh, and he was trying to locate those individuals. Uh, in addition to that, there was a, a lot of uh, torture, uh, porn, and, and uh, um, what you would consider, uh, you know, uh, um, depictions of women uh, being abused, uh, being raped, and being killed. Um, in addition to all of that, uh, we continued to look uh, and uh, we uh, were able to uh, determine uh, that that Chevy avalanche that was used during the commission of the Amber Costello crime, uh, that Chevy avalanche was in South Carolina. And again, with the help of our uh, partners, uh, we were able to capture—we uh, were able able to seize that uh, uh, Chevy Avalanche pursuant to a search warrant, and we're certainly going to analyze that. In addition to that, uh, pursuant to the arrest of the defendant last night by the Suffolk County uh, Police Department, we we obtained one of his burner phones, his last burner phones. Uh, the investigate, As I said, the, this case is not over. It's only beginning. We're continuing to execute search warrants, and we anticipate getting more evidence. Uh, before I... I I turn it over to my partners, I, I, I want to I thank a lot of people in the room. First and foremost, I want to thank the victims in this case. You know, it's always inspiring as a prosecutor when you get to meet uh, the victims. Uh, and while sometimes our defendants could embody the very worst of humanity, it seems that invariably our victims embody the very best of what it means uh, to be human. And uh, in this case, it was no, no different. Uh, I've gotten to know the families, and I'm inspired by them, and I'm impressed by their patience uh, and by their, their dogged uh, persistence in not only supporting uh, their their lost uh, sisters or or or, or mother uh, or or daughter, uh, but also really uh, you know really standing for victims a- a- everywhere. So I want to I want I want to thank them all uh, so much. Uh, And I want to let them know that we're going to continue to work this case. Um, The next thing I want to do, I just want to thank—I want to thank our our partners. I want to thank Suffolk County Police Commissioner Rodney Harrison. Um, You know, we said it was a change, and when we talked about, you know, not going before the media, if you see, um, you know, Rodney did go before the media, Uh, but it was always in a very controlled manner, and it was always with a controlled purpose. Again. We did that because we knew we were playing before an audience of one person. Uh, And so I wanna thank Rodney for his partnership. Uh, Most importantly, I wanna thank Rodney for his integrity. I think in the past, what the reason why uh, uh, these uh, various investigations fell short was because there was a lot of outside influence, a lot of people who had nothing to do with the investigation, nothing to do with the um, uh, the, the uh, investigation or any of the agencies that were actually handling the investigation, they still asserted pressure on those investigations. That did not happen with our task force. Our task force were, was run by our members uh, and we did uh, what we thought was in the best uh, the best investigative steps and what was in the best interest of the, of the investigation. So I want to thank Rodney for that uh, and, and his whole team. I know that we have Suffolk County Homicide here, Kevin uh, Byer, we've got uh, Inspector Rowan, uh, and I know that they've been around and I know that they're here and I know that they stand in the shoes of their past investigators. And I want to congratulate them and I want to thank them for their partnership. Uh, I also want to thank uh, uh, Sheriff Errol Toulon, everything I said about uh, Rodney. I could say about Errol, Uh, Errol uh, is an unbelievable partner. Uh, He was an unbelievable partner in this case. Uh, During the the dependency of this case, and one of the reasons why we we had to take this case down was we learned that the defendant was using these alternate uh, um, identities and these alternate instruments to continue to patronize sex workers, uh, which of course made us very nervous. Uh, But with with the help of the sheriff and his database and his uh, analysts, we were able to continually uh, stay uh, one, uh, one step ahead of the defendant. So, so thank you, uh, Sheriff Toulon. I wanna thank um, the FBI. I know um, uh, Assistant Director in Charge Michael Brodak is here. I wanna thank his entire team. You know, when you have the FBI, uh, not only do you have tremendous resources uh, and insight, uh, whether it's the Behavioral uh, Sciences Unit, whether it's CAST, uh, whether it's CART, which is their computer unit, but you also have the ability to seize a car in uh, South Carolina. I can't seize a car in South Carolina without uh, the, the FBI. So, so thank you for that, uh, and thank you for your partnership, and thank you for 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 your willingness uh, to work with us. I want to I want to um, thank the New York State Troopers. Uh, I know Major Udis is here and his team. Uh, you know uh, this case is is emblematic of of great cooperation, but we always get that same level of cooperation from the state police, uh, no matter what uh, case we're working. So I want to thank them. Their investigators did a great uh, um, uh, did great work on this job and uh, in this case, and we couldn't have done it without them. Um, lastly, I want to thank uh, Nassau County Police Commissioner Pat Ryder. I don't know if he's here. Did he make it? <laughs> um, you know. <laughs> This, this case, as I said, spans you know, 13 years. And during that time, um, you know, Pat Ryder has been our neighbor to the West. When it started, I think he was a sergeant, uh, detective sergeant, maybe uh, uniform sergeant, but whatever, whenever we needed something to be done or whenever the task force needed uh, something to be done, uh, Pat Ryder would do it and he would do it quietly without much fanfare and we know he would keep the confidentiality of our grand jury and our investigation. So I want to thank him for that, Um, and with that I will turn it over to uh, Commissioner Rodney Harrison.
5: Good afternoon. Today is a good day, and before I acknowledge the individuals that had a role in getting to this place, I would first and foremost like to offer my deepest condolences to the family members. To the family members of Amber Costello, Melissa Bartholomew, Megan Waterman. can only imagine what you had to adore over the last decade regarding knowing that your killer was still loose. God bless you. So I've I've had the privilege of being the police commissioners nearly about two years now and uh, I have had that investigative experience in the NYPD uh, as a detective, as the chief of detectives and when I was going through the process of being the police commissioner, my engagement with the county executive was I was very familiar with this unfortunate homicides and I wanted to let it be known that this was going to be our number one priority. But I also want to make this very clear that this arrest was made by the investigators assigned to the task force. I announced during a press conference 18 months ago about a new team effort that was going to investigate the homicide, and that was going to consist of people from Ray Turney's office, from Mike Brodack, FBI. Mike, thank you so much. State Police, Steve, appreciate your support. Dr. Earl Talon, Jr., thank you, sir as well as the investigators from the homicide detectives in Suffolk County. Gentlemen, thank you for all you've done working together with us, making sure we are here today. I also want to thank my partner. Pat Ryder. Pat, good seeing you, man. And uh, former NYPD police commissioner, Keyshawn Sewell for providing resources to assist in the investigation that brought us here today. So one of my first acts was to survey the scene. When I first got assigned as a police commissioner, me and Kevin Breyer went over to Gilgo Beach. I want to thank Kevin. You know, when I first met Kevin, he broke the whole case down and where we stood. He knew the case like the back of his hand. He worked tirelessly in this case. Kev was in charge of overseeing the Task Force since its creation, and you did a phenomenal job, Kev. Thank you. So there's something that I learned from a former NYPD Police Commissioner, James O'Neill, which is in order to fight crime or to solve investigations, you have to make sure you're working with your law enforcement partners. The blueprint in making this arrest was a whole team effort. Everybody left their eagles at the door and made sure that they brought the knowledge and the resources to this investigation. Fresh eyes on this case and the resiliency of our investigators allowed us to identify Rex Hurman. Ladies and gentlemen, Rex Sherman is a demon that walks among us, a predator that ruined families. And if not for the members of this task force, he would still be on the streets today. However, even with this arrest, we're not done. There's more work to do in this investigation regarding the other victims of the Gilgo Beach bodies that were discovered. I'm going to encourage anybody that still has information call our Crime Stoppers hotline 1-800-220-TIPS. I want to recognize and thank my Chief of Detectives, John. Thank you for your great work. Deputy Police Commissioner Anthony Carter. Both of you who provided update information regarding the case and let it be known if there was any resources that they needed that you brought it to my attention. Since the discovery of the first victim, there's been a lot of scrutiny and criticism regarding how this investigation was handled. I will tell you this. The investigators were never discouraged. They continued and, and uncovered evidence and follow the leads. They never stop working and will continue to work tirelessly until we bring justice to all the families involved. Last but not least, I want to thank my predecessors uh, that came before me, the work that they did. I want to thank them for really uh, laying the foundation
2: that helped us get to here today. Good afternoon. My name is Michael Brodak. I'm the FBI Special Agent in Charge of the New York Office's Criminal Division. The FBI expanded its full set of resources in support of our local and state partners to advance this investigation. The charges show that we can overcome the most difficult challenges when federal, state, and local law enforcement work together under one task force. While nothing can fill the void caused by the loss of a loved one, through today's announcement, we are hopeful that the families of the victims begin to experience a sense of peace, closure, and justice, and that the general public feels safer knowing that an alleged killer is no longer roaming free. The actions taken today should serve as a reminder that the FBI, along with our law enforcement partners, will continue to be resolute in our determination to bring all offenders to justice, no matter how many years has passed. I would like to thank Suffolk County District Attorney Ray Tierney and his prosecution team, Suffolk County Police Commissioner Rodney Harrison and the Suffolk County Police Department, the New York State Police, and the investigators and staff of the FBI New York Field Office, including the Long Island Violent Crime Task Force. Thank you.
6: Good afternoon. Uh, My name is Dr. Errol D. Toulon, Jr., and I'm the Sheriff of Suffolk County. I would profoundly like to thank the District Attorney and the Police Commissioner uh, for including me not only here today, but for including the Suffolk County Sheriff's Office and recognizing the importance of jail intelligence. It is extremely important when you realize that we created our Human Trafficking Unit in 2018, that there are victims in our community and that intelligence is being shared by many of the men and women who are incarcerated today. And we have seen many disjointed investigations occur, and leading up to the leadership of these two men have really brought everything together. I am proud that today we stand here a little bit closer to bringing closure to the families and extend my deepest condolences to all of you. Because of the nature of this case, and recognizing that human trafficking and corrections intelligence is so important, we realize that there are many other cases that are going on that we will help to solve going forward. So I thank my intelligence staff and team that are here today for their diligence and their work. While we did our part in this investigation, we continue because we have to house this individual. We have already designated uh, or talked about certain locations where we will house him. And in addition, the security measures we will implement in our facility uh, to make sure that this individual is brought to justice the way he should be. Thank you very much and have a good day.
7: Uh, Good afternoon, Uh, I'm Colonel Richard Allen, uh, the field commander with the state police. And I want to start by expressing my, my sincere condolences to the family members that are here today. Although losing a loved one, you can never completely get rid of that pain. But hopefully these steps that are taken here today are a step in the right direction for you to start in the healing process or work through the healing process. I want to thank the members of the task force, all the agencies you see behind me. When we were approached in 2022 to be part of this task force, we were fully engaged. Um, glad to be part of this. Uh, we, we assigned investigators on a full-time basis. You know what, what you see um, being done here today is the end game of agencies working together, as was said before, with no egos, all egos put aside, with the sole mission to find justice for these victims. You know, um, here in, in Troop L, Major Stephen Utis oversees the operations down here. He has been intricately involved in this task force since we became partners with it, and I'm gonna ask him to come up and, and say a few words or expand upon this a, a little bit of our role in the, in the task force.
3: Thank you, Colonel. Good afternoon. I'm Major Steve Utis, New York State Police Troop L, Long Island Troop Commander. I'd like to take this opportunity to start off by acknowledging the DA, Ray Tierney, and Commissioner Rodney Harrison, for having the vision to see that forming a task force might breed new light into this investigation. The state police were asked in early 2022 to join this task force and once requested, we were more than willing to do so. We were also very pleased that we were able to make some very meaningful contributions in this case to help propel it forward. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank all of the task force members from the different agencies and congratulate them on a job well done. I think this case represents an example of what we as law enforcement can do when we pool our resources together and we work together. I would also like to mention the state police member assigned to this task force. You were provided with a mission and that mission was to participate in this task force, put everything else that you were doing aside, place 100% of your attention on this case and help push this case forward you more than accomplished that mission. I congratulate you on a job well done, and I commend you for your outstanding work. To the families, I'd like to say that on behalf of myself and the New York State Police, we offer you our deepest condolences. We recognize that these crimes may have happened years ago, but that pain continues. Our hope is that this development today provides you with some relief and some comfort knowing that the person responsible for the for your loved one's death is now being held accountable and he's no longer a threat to anyone else in society. I want you to know additionally that the state police is not done here. We are remaining committed and will continue to support the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office, the Suffolk County Police Department and this task force as we move into the next phase of this process. That's the prosecution. I would also like to say something to everyone watching this with us today. There's been a lot of discussion here today about charges, about the suspect, about what happened, but I would also like everybody to take the the time to join with me and keep the families of the victims and the victims themselves in your thoughts and in your prayers. Each one of these victims was a family member and a loved one, and their void and their loss caused great pain and they did not deserve this. Nobody is deserving of this. We hope this development today will bring some comfort to them as they move forward. Thank you. Uh,
4: Does anybody have any questions?
3: People
4: in the community. can you just explain that more here? You know uh, sure. before I do that I just you know I'm, I'm standing back there, I realized I didn't thank my own team. Um, <laughs> so uh, So I want to I want to thank, uh, thank my chief investigator Rich Zacharis, uh, who is uh, without, uh, I am so lucky to have I want to thank uh, Nick Santamartino, ADA Nick Santamartino, uh, ADA Michelle Haddad, ADA uh, Andrew Lee. Uh, I also want to thank my, my chief uh, assistant, uh, uh, Alan Bodie. and I want to thank all of the incredible, incredible analysts uh, that we have working for us at the Suffolk County DA's office. So, uh, having said that, I'll now answer your question. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think that there was a tension in 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 the task force, and it was a, it was a, it was a good tension uh, because, you know, there's a tension between getting. The, the evidence necessary to charge somebody, but also keeping the public safe, uh, and that's the tension that we always deal with. Uh, so as we were working forward, we were and and you know we had uh, Suffolk County PD, we had the FBI uh, surveilling the defendant. Uh, obviously, that can't be all the time, uh, but we were you know we were reasonably assured with that. Uh, but this individual was 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 a person that continued to uh, patronize sex workers at all hours of the night. Uh, he continued to use fictitious um, um, uh, email addresses, fictitious identities, burner phones, uh, and so as we, we worked through the case, uh, and we got closer and closer. Uh, all of a sudden, and we built the evidence. Suddenly, the balance tips uh, in favor of uh, of public safety. So, uh, you know, I think we we wanted, we all wanted as a task force to continue it, but uh, I think collectively we felt that it was time uh, to, to you know to strike that balance and, and and to take him off the street so that's what we did. Yeah you
0: see that you have some of the family members here today. Uh, could you
4: use some of them if they wanted to say anything about the, news I, the I, I don't believe they uh, does, it, does anyone anybody want to say anything? No they're they're here they're they're I could tell you they're the Waterman, uh, uh Barthelemy and Brainerd Barnes uh, family members, but uh, they're here uh, they're here first and foremost to support uh, their loved ones, and we're we're happy and grateful to have them here. Are you looking
1: at any other people? Do you believe
4: that there are multiple people responsible for the remains for the murders? The, uh, this, this portion had to deal with the deaths of these four young women, uh, and that's what we focused on. That was what the grand jury investigation was focused on. I talked about the commonalities, uh, and the commonalities, uh, all of those commonalities that we talked to were uh, unique to these uh, four t- separate cases, uh, so that's what we're uh, working on. I think the other uh, members of the task force said, you know, we're going we're to continue, uh, you know, and continue to work and investigate and try to get a small measure of closure for all the victims' families. But for right now, uh, this defendant—it's uh, this defendant with these, 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 uh, these four victims. Um, I'm, I'm I'm here to talk about uh, what we did with regard to these four victims and as I, I open my my um, uh, my ad- address by talking about the need to maintain uh, investigative secrecy so we are going to c- maintain that investigative secrecy and when I talk about other individuals and other cases it will be after they have uh, they have handcuffs on So, I mean, you know, we talked about uh, we talked about you know some of the evidence that was there. Uh, you know, obviously the cast uh, that that's, uh, that phone evidence uh, was 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 great evidence. Um, and then there were other commonalities. There were other inve- uh, investi- uh, investigations. But I think one of the good things about having a task force is basically you strip it all down uh, and you start from scratch. And then you use the DA's office because the DA's office has to get you. Uh, li- the lifeblood of of an investigation is information and the way you get information on a cold case is the district attorney's office issues subpoenas in conjunction with the investigators and execute search warrants again in conjunction with the, with the um, uh, the investigators and, and then you then you mine all that data and then and then you let that data take you where you need to go so that's what we did in this case and six weeks in uh, the, uh, the break in the case, uh, a significant break in the case was, uh, was the, uh, was the avalanche and the fact that this guy, uh, you know, he was described by witnesses as an ogre. He, he, he matched the description of the ogre and where he lived. Well, I mean, it was, it was a lot of things, right? It was, it was, it was his, uh, physical size. It was his, uh, where he lived, where he worked, uh, the fact that his uh, um, family members were out of the country at the time of the commission of the three murders. Uh, the fact that um, he, he now then you start looking into him and then you start getting burner phones. Well, he has uh, we had up to seven burner phones. He's using these f- fictitious email addresses. So um, so then, so then you, you follow him and you get an abandonment sample. Then you go back to some of the old evidence. So it's you know there, there are there are, I mean, March 14th, uh, 2022 was a, a huge day for the task force, but uh, you know it, it's it's never one piece of evidence. <coughs> well, there's, I mean, there's there's like the, what they'll call lawman searches, and basically what it is 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 you run a certain make and model of a car and certain other, you know, where you live or or what you do for a living, and then you get data and then you mine that data for something that would would, would uh, match with uh, with your. Uh, with your case, and you do that, you don't do that just, you know, you do that a hundred times, you know, until until it hits, until you get the right data points. Did the suspect
7: say anything when he was arrested? Was he surprised? Did he
4: uh, admit to those murders? So we can't talk we, about, we can't talk about, um, we can't talk about uh, ethically in New York, we can't talk about any statements the defendant made, but he, uh, you know, he made, uh, we, we're not turning over any statements. Uh surprised? So. <laughs> um, I would say he was, yes. Yeah. So that in between the in between the bed and the and the and the the cab, there's like a little triangular uh, um, ornament almost, and it, it's it's unique in the way it's configured. It's unique to to the avalanche. It was unique to the avalanche at that time, uh, and that was something that was pointed out by by witnesses. What? Well, you know the investigation is is continuing, and and I would never say never, um, and we're going to continue to look at again. Now, th- this is a, a watershed event in the in in this case, uh, and so we've now uh, are going out and we're we're ex- executing more search warrants. We'll get more information, more data, and you know together, uh, we'll look at that and see where it leads. Can you the other victims feeling today? I'm sorry. Which, uh, the, uh, so, so this investigation had to do with um, uh, th- these, these four victims, so we've been in touch with the four victims through the grand jury uh, process. Um, with regard to victims in general and, and other victims, uh, you know, who lost people in the vicinity of that area, you know, we speak uh, to, to our victims all the time, but that, that's, those are conversations that we keep between ourselves. So, uh, you know, it, it's, um, uh, so first off, Maureen Brainerd Barnes, she, the, the other uh, three, one, uh, one was, was, uh, was, went uh, uh, missing in 2009, uh, I believe the others in 2010. Um, she was in 2007, so it, it, was, it was a little bit more remote in time. Uh, we are, um, we are uh, pro- uh, working through evidence. A lot of that evidence has to do with forensic evidence. Uh, and analyses that are not completed, uh, but once those analyses are completed, uh, we are we are uh, we feel good about the case, and we're going to just continue to let that process go. And again, I think the the the, the um, initial plan was to allow the grand jury investigation to go a little uh, further, but uh, at a certain time, uh, again, the, the the task force felt, you know, we need to uh, we, we for for for. for Reasons having nothing to do with the evidence in the case, we need to take it down. you you
1: just sum up this defendant and what he is
4: you know, he's uh, you know, it's 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 um, as a prosecutor and as investigators, you know, he is charged with a crime. Uh, there are certain elements in which we ha- we need to prove that crime. We are going to prove those elements. We're going to work hard. We're going to convict him, and we're going to hold uh, him responsible for what he did. And whether, you know, what I think of him personally, whether I like him, whether I don't like him, whether I it doesn't matter. We are going to hold him responsible for what he did in this case.
7: Um,
4: the grand jury is um, it's a secret. Uh, and we're going to keep it secret. Um, uh, but we have an investigation, and it is continuing. There was a belt that was presented
0: to the, uh, publicly by the Suburban Police Department a few years ago with initials on it. I think one of the initials appeared to be MWMH uh,
4: or WH or something along those lines. Obviously, this guy's got an H in his name. Sure does.
0: Can you, can you talk about
4: that? I mean, uh, you know, he has an H in his name. He has, uh, so it's, what was it, HM? Or W H. H. Or WH. Yeah, so he's got an H in his name and other um other relatives in, in his family have a W in their name. What that means, I don't know. And can you talk about alleged why? His motive? Why and motive? um I think that when you look at his uh internet searches, um, you know, I, I think that um uh provides a little um uh, in, uh, in, insight into his state of mind, um, and again, we don't have to prove motive. We have to prove the elements, and that's what we're going to do. Well, uh, you know, you you, uh, you you know, you said women. Um, you know, with regard to the sex workers, what we did was uh, we we had them under surveillance. Uh, we had other means of monitoring him, uh, and again, it's uh, it's a um, it's a process, and and that process is you have to balance uh, the ability to to to, prove, to find e- enough evidence to charge him and hold him responsible with the balance of keeping the public safe, uh, and it's it's not easy, uh, and we decided at a certain point in time that the you know that we needed to take him down because we didn't feel comfortable with it, so that's what we did. Um, I don't think it was so much. Uh, I don't. I don't think it was so much uh, uh, the searches. I think. I think that the conduct of the defendant was was very consistent. I think, but uh, the the quality of our evidence was increasing uh, by the by the by the day, by the moment, uh, due to the great work of our, our task force uh, uh, partners. So, at, at a certain point of time, we're like, okay, uh, you know, we can we can do this. Uh, the uh, uh, the um, uh, I believe the uh, the cause of death is homicidal violence. Obviously, uh, given the length of time and 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 the exposure to a very harsh environment, uh, forensically there there uh, was not uh, you know not a, a lot that that could be done with with, with the remains other than uh, come to that conclusion. He owns ninety-two
0: guns. There was set uh, that
4: he has he uh, has. He has uh, uh, permits for 92 guns, he has a very large safe in which guns are kept. Uh, we are uh, continuing to um, execute search warrants, so I'm sure we'll have that answer shortly. And his arrest.
3: Is there any that
4: he I'm sorry? think I think there's I think there's, uh, with, uh, there's always concerns I think you know we, I, I got into office in January 22. Uh, we worked with our partners we, we had our first meeting uh, February 1st uh, and we worked and, and you know March 14th was really that watershed day and when I tell you you know I'd like to brag and say that my office was really working hard which we were uh, but no other agency was working any less hard than we were. once we realized what we had and we realized the stakes, all of our partnership, uh, all of our partners really worked. Uh, I mean, I, I think if you look at the, at the folks standing here, uh, I don't think that you know, in the last 48 hours, any of us have gotten more than three hours' sleep. We're running um, um, how much more do you time into that uh We are going to continue our investigation and when we are prepared, when we have concluded that investigation, uh, we will, uh, you know, we will we'll bring that uh, to a conclusion, but we will not do it before. All
3: right, between thank all you. You have one more. Hey, between all the search warrants and the subpoenas, like, do you ever think that you're you going to lose them? Like, you know, between all the searching
4: around and stuff. Or? I, you know, and I don't want to tell you, you know, exact uh, investigative techniques because they're, you know, again. Part of the reasons why they're um, effective is because people don't necessarily know what that uh, what what it is exactly we do, but uh, always a concern. But given the professionalism of our partners, uh, their diligence, and their commitment, uh, we felt good about about the case uh, or keeping the case going until we didn't, and then we took it down. Thank, Th- you. thank you, thanks guys. over now, and we'll go rest my foot. It is hot in here. boy. Thank you for
2: that. That's a good job. Thank